With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. When you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white, having white probation officers. And the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is could have been, some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. There is news to tell you about in the Rudy Giuliani defamation trial. Let's bring in NBC News justice correspondent Ryan Riley. Ryan, I am told we have a verdict. That's true. The verdict just came in. The jury is coming in uh, to the courtroom now. Uh, Judge Howell took the bench and told the parties that the jury has reached a unanimous verdict here. So in just a few moments, we should be finding out uh, if uh, this jury has imposed what Rudy Giuliani's lawyers have described as the civil equivalent of the death penalty here uh, in this case, given the impact that that could have um, on his life. Uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, is is not a rich man at these, uh, this, uh, at this point in stage in his life. Um, so it's a question of whether or not they'll be able to collect on those financial uh, penalties that the uh, the jury will be imposing here shortly and what the extent of those financial penalties uh, are going to be. But, you know, if this is the civil death penalty, what I can tell you is based on uh, some of our other uh, reporting that was that Rudy Giuliani's last meal was a cheeseburger. Indeed. Remind us, we've been talking multi-million dollars. What is it that they are asking for here? So they're asking for $24 million for each of these plaintiffs, saying that's how much it would require uh, to repair the reputational damage that was done to them as a result of these lies that were being spread. On top of that, uh, the jury could uh, impose an additional penalty uh, to sort of discourage other people from committing this sort of conduct in the future, sort of to send a message, as the plaintiff's lawyer described here, that other people can't be spreading these baseless lies uh, about innocent election workers who did nothing wrong and saying and making these bizarre claims when, you know, reality, the video shows them handing over a ginger mint, for example. One of the claims that Giuliani made was that they were exchanging a USB drive, and he compared them to drug dealers. And, you know, he also compared them to bank robbers at one point. Um, and, you know, um, that one of the uh, plaintiffs in this case, Shea Moss, argued that that's what Rudy Giuliani thinks of when he sees black people, when he sees black voters. His mind goes there immediately. I want to bring into our conversation MSNBC's Lisa Rubin, who has snuck on set as we received this breaking news. Lisa, you and I have talked about this before, but I think it is worth revisiting how these numbers are set, how you assess reputational damage. Sure. So Ashley Humphreys, who's the expert in this case, essentially tries to reverse engineer it, Alicia 
tries to figure out how much would it cost if you were to mount a marketing campaign, so to speak, on behalf of Shamos and Ruby Freeman to restore them to where their reputations were before this all took place. And the damage here is really widespread. I've been reading Shamos's testimony. There is no question that the damage here was extensive, so extensive that when she went to a Chick-fil-A to try and apply for a job there rather than continuing in her job at the elections department, the person who interviewed her there took his laptop, turned it around, and faced it toward her with a picture of her and the word fraud stamped right across it and said, what's going on here? Can you explain this to me? Her life was destroyed by this, and the reputational campaign that would have to be mounted to put her back to where she was before December 4th, 2020, when the allegations first surfaced, would be considerable, and that's what Professor Humphreys tried to do here. Rather, there is the damage that has been done to American democracy. There is the damage that has been done to our institutions. Those are themes that we come back to over and over again. This case is so important because it is a reminder that there were individuals whose lives were forever changed. And I think that we have to keep in mind, Rudy Giuliani was not just some advocate that believed Donald Trump. He was a celebrated former U.S. attorney. He had been the America's mayor. So when he said that he looked into these things, he had a background that would give credibility to his claims. It's one thing somebody comes in this studio and convinces you or I on something. It's another if we say we investigated it and we were the top federal investigators that broke up the mob and all. So he brought all of that to bear against these women. And I think that you've got to consider that in whatever the jury comes with tonight. This is no ordinary guy that made uh, just reckless statements. This is a guy that should have known how to investigate something. Ryan, I'm told we have a verdict. We do. I'm not going to try to do math live on the air, but it's a significant penalty over uh, $100 million altogether, uh, $75 million in punitary damage, uh, $20 million towards each of them, and then more than $16 million uh, for the first question in compensatory damages. So a significant, significant finding uh, against Rudy Giuliani um, and is really the what the, his loan lawyer would describe as the civil equivalent uh, of the death penalty for, uh, for Rudy Giuliani here. Give me a little context on those numbers, Lisa Rubin. Did any of this surprise you? No, it doesn't surprise me. I had actually expected that punitive damages award, Alicia, to be huge. And the reason is, separate from compensatory damages, which are meant to compensate the person for their injuries, including emotional distress, punitive damages are meant to send a message, as Mike Gottlieb, who is one of Ruby and Shay's lawyers, said in his closing statement. They are meant to deter future behavior like that, but also to send a message to the wrongdoer that what you did here was so egregious and so wrong that it's meant to punish him, not to reward them. And so to the extent that the numbers that Ryan has just reported to us are accurate and that there are punitive damages here in excess of $70 million, that is a unanimous jury, Alicia, and I should underscore that. The jury verdict here had to be unanimous, down to the dollar and cent, telling the world what Rudy Giuliani did to these women, particularly abusing that position of trust that he had, as Rev was just discussing, was so heinous that he should be punished more than they should be compensated for their injuries. Ryan, my friend, you said you did not want to do math on the air, but I'm going to ask you to run us through those numbers one more time. 
Sure, over 150 is what we can uh, we can go with now. So it's 75 in those punitive damages. The compensatory uh, damages uh, is 16 each, and then an additional 20 each for both of them. Um, so you know, very significant uh, finding here. Um, ultimately, landing on slightly different numbers uh, for the compensatory damages. Uh, it, both of them are in the 16 uh, 16 million dollar range, but uh, they're a little bit different for each of them. And then it's matching 20 and then 75 overall punitive. Lisa, you can explain why. Yeah, so there are two categories of compensatory damages here. We've been talking about this case in shorthand, Alicia, as a defamation case, but there were actually two different claims. One was defamation, and one was intentional infliction of emotional distress. And that's where these two numbers divide. Each of these women being awarded more than $16 million on the defamation, but on emotional distress, each of them also being awarded $20 million each for the emotional distress that Rudy Giuliani intentionally inflicted upon them by his statement and then restatement and restatement of the lies about what Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shea Moss were doing at the State Farm Arena that night. You see, but they're very unhappy about their appearance. I think there's an article in the handout about a woman who was, white woman who was in Hawaii, and she said that being around the Hawaiian people and the Asian people, and she said she was tall and white and pale. She said she felt like a freak. And so then she started getting involved in genetic science. Many people desperately want genetically related children, but for millions, that's impossible. A new technology could help folks struggling with infertility as well as gay and trans people trying to build families. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been exploring the issues that this new technology raises. And today, Rob brings us some of the people who would want to try it. It's early on a Wednesday morning, and I'm meeting up with Diana Zucknick. She's on her way to an infertility clinic in downtown Austin for yet another appointment. Where are we going? We're going to the fourth floor to Aspire Fertility Clinic. Diana and her husband started trying to have kids even before they got married 12 years ago when they were in their 20s. Got you all Even built a big house right away for all the kids they wanted. But after about a year of trying, the couple discovered they were both infertile. Um, we had sort of just imagined that it would happen naturally, and then to find out that it can't ever happen naturally, it was really hard. So the couple started searching for anything that could help them. A nurse comes into Diana's exam room to take a blood sample. Diana's already been through six other IVF cycles. Her arms are scarred from all the blood draws she's gone through. So she's braced for another rough one. Okay, my friend, quick little poke. You okay? Yes, thank you. You found it easily today. I did. Diana even retired from teaching elementary school kids to focus on getting pregnant. Plus, she says... It just got too painful to work with kids every day when she wanted children of her own so badly. After she changes into a hospital gown, Diana's doctor arrives to do yet another ultrasound of her ovaries. All right, Diana. Which she's nicknamed Mona and Lisa. So, yeah, let's get started with the ultrasound. See how Mona and Lisa are doing. Exactly. Our friends. All right, this is that ultrasound. Each round of IVF has been grueling. Blood tests, right. ultrasounds, daily shots with powerful hormones, painful procedures, and then there's the emotional roller coaster of hope and disappointment. There was a lot of shame. We did not, um, until recently, we never talked about this with people. 
so people are going to be surprised to hear about it on the radio. <laughs> Her husband's insurance pays most of their bills. Paul's now 39 and works as a computer engineer. He underwent surgeries and has been taking medication to try to boost his sperm count. It's some sort of primal kind of coding in our DNA, this impulse that you want to procreate to help proliferate life for the partner that you love, to create this amazing being that's just a representation of you. But nothing worked. Finally, this past summer, Diana tested positive on a pregnancy test for the first time. I surprised my husband when he came home from work. We were super excited and we were just ecstatic. And it's, it was wonderful until we found out that Diana was having a miscarriage. It's like a death in the family, a death that you can't even really acknowledge because you weren't even really pregnant for that long and you didn't get to meet them and you won't. It's been devastating for sure. I guess you just don't realize how important it is to you until you're faced with the reality that it might not be possible. Diana and Paul haven't given up and earlier this year the couple heard about something that scientists are trying to develop to help couples like them called in vitro gametogenesis or IVG. IVG would make eggs or sperm for anyone from just a single one of their skin cells. If it does become a reality it's going to help so many people just like us. People who really want to be genetically related to their future children. My husband and I would be perfect candidates for that if there was a way to make sperm with his DNA and eggs with my DNA, we would 100% sign up for it. Now, the Zuckticks know scientists could hit a dead end and never get IVG to work safely. And even if they do, IVG could come too late for them. They're open to adopting or using donor eggs, sperm, or embryos. But even the possibility of IVG gives people like Diana and Paul hope. I completely understand why somebody would wonder, why does it matter so much? Like, why is it so important to you? But it's, for some reason, I find it very important. I want to try whatever I possibly can to increase our chances at having a child that is genetically related to me and my husband. A little child that looks a little like him and a little like me, and who knows if there'll be anything like us, but... It's something we want to try. Same goes for many gay and trans couples who long for kids genetically related to both partners, too. Wow, what a cool technology that could really be a game changer. Tara Ferguson is 30 years old. She lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with her wife, Delilah, who's 35. I have always wanted to have a biologically related child. It's not that I would require it to be a parent, but it would be a preference. And same with the preference of having the child be biologically related to my partner. But we don't just get to try the old-fashioned way. But IVG's also raising lots of fears. Like so many new technologies, it holds a lot of promise and also a lot of threats. Sonia Suter is a bioethicist and law professor at George Washington University. She says 
IVG could be used to mass-produce human embryos, making it way easier to screen out embryos with genes for, say, deafness, blindness, increasing discrimination against disabled people. And IVG could hasten the day when designer babies become a real possibility. But what if we start moving towards trying to pick a child who is as tall as possible? Or if we look for genes associated with intelligence to sort of create an uber race, then obviously I think that's fraught with all sorts of issues. But for now, people like Diana Zucknick only have IVF as an option. All right, Diana, ultrasound's finished. Good stuff. Diana wraps up her IVF visit. So, get dressed, crack the door, and I'll come back and answer any questions you may have. The doctor tells her to get ready to come back sometime within the next few days. That's when he'll try yet again to extract healthy eggs from her ovaries. Diana just turned 41. Last night at my uh, birthday celebration, my best friend asked me, like, how's it going? And, um... I really couldn't answer because I feel like at this point I have to sort of just numb myself. I can't get my hopes up too high because we've done that before. The Zucknicks say they get why a future where IVG actually becomes available might spook people. I completely understand the potential unethical uses that it could lead to. But I don't want a designer baby. I just want a baby that is a little bit of me and a little bit of my husband. I just wish that it was easier and possible for us. And who knows, maybe one day, maybe one day it will be. Rob Stein, NPR News, Austin, Texas. The gay rights movement is changing everything. Fifty years ago today, the American Psychiatric Association did a big thing. It removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. And that decision helped change how gay people were perceived in America. We were cured overnight by a stroke of the pen, just as originally we'd been made sick by probably a stroke of the pen. Barbara Giddings was an activist for LGBTQ equality, and before her death in 2007, Giddings spoke with journalist Eric Marcus for an oral history book called Making Gay History. Now, Eric Marcus hosts a podcast called Making Gay History, which draws from hundreds of interviews from the 1980s and 90s. Marcus says it's hard to imagine today what it was like for gay people to suffer under the label of sickness. You could argue on moral grounds whether or not being a homosexual was a good or bad thing. You could say that it was sinful. If you've been labeled someone who is mentally ill by medical professionals, that's a very hard thing to fight. One of the people who helped bring about the change was Dr. Evelyn Hooker. She conducted a study in the 1950s that concluded being gay is not a mental disorder. She spoke with Marcus before her death in 1996. I know that wherever I go, whether I know it or not, that there are both men and women for whom my little bit of work and my caring enough to do it has made an enormous difference in their lives. Today, Marcus is focused on a fight for transgender people. What we see among those who are leading the backlash now is that they've gone after the most vulnerable and the least understood people within the LGBTQ community. Marcus takes heart in the bravery of people like Frank Kameny, who in the late 1950s was dismissed from his position as an astronomer because he was gay. Before his death in 2011, Kameny fought for gay rights and for psychiatrists to remove the illness label. We 
are the experts on ourselves, and we will tell the experts they have nothing to tell us. But it took a few years to get that across. One of the voices from the past heard on the Making Gay History podcast. And what was the instrument for doing it? Deception through mm. an act of using whiskey. Now, the whiskey, you know, that's working all over the world and start, they're starting to do it in South Africa, in Thailand, and other places and whatnot, is sex and anti-sex. Oh, you don't need to be a female all the time. After all, females have to go through a lot of agony. Wouldn't you like to be like your brother? Well, I don't have the equipment of my brother. Oh, well, you can pretend that you have it. I got some stuff I can sell you in the store. Strap-ons, you name it. Okay, virtual reality headsets, online gaming platform memberships, and mini robots top a lot of kids' must-have gift lists this year. The smart toy sector, as it's called, is worth close to $17 billion. Some parent and consumer groups say these tech-driven toys are not safe. NPR's Chloe Veltman explains. The 2023 naughty list of tech toys that spy, steal and shock includes physical products like the Amazon Echo Dot Kids and VTEX Kitty Buzz. A smart device for fun messaging with friends. As well as virtual ones, such as subscriptions to Amazon's Twitch online gaming platform and gift cards to pay for Roblox's in-game currency. Shelby Knox is the online safety campaign director for Parents Together, the nonprofit behind the annual tech toy naughty list. We don't think that kids should be raised without access to tech. But there is a long track record of seeing kids really hurt by tech products. Kids can be hurt in a variety of ways. They can be exposed to bullying, scammers or sexual predators. But Knox says the majority of the products on the naughty list are there because of data security and privacy concerns. Kids' private information is a literal goldmine to these companies because they make money selling data about kids to online advertising firms. In 2018, for example, the Federal Trade Commission fined VTech, the maker of the smartphone-like Kiddie Buzz, for allegedly collecting the personal information of hundreds of thousands of children without their parents' consent. VTech paid the fine but issued a statement at the time saying it did not admit any violations of law or liability. Parents have a whole new set of threats they have to be thinking about when it comes to what toys they should bring into their homes for the holidays. That's RJ Cross. She's a policy analyst with US Perg, the consumer protection nonprofit's latest annual Trouble in Toyland report, adds that these smart toys can potentially expose children to harmful content within the games themselves. Take Meta's Quest virtual reality headsets. This is really immersive technology that feels so, so real when you're inside of it. Meta lowered the recommended minimum age for their use earlier this year. Cross says now kids as young as 10 can use them to play edgy multiplayer games available through Meta's Rec Room app. This is one of the most popular apps Meta has on its app store. Rec Room is full of user-created games, some of them very disturbing. But for Meta, it's like whack-a-mole. Once they take down one version of a troubling game, another user puts up a different version. Meta's website does have a guide for parents and preteens concerning the safety of its VR offerings. It includes written content warnings and a video. It can feel intense to be immersed in an experience, and it could prompt an emotional reaction. And in a statement to NPR, Meta said parents can control whether their preteen can download or use an app and block access to apps at any time. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. Head on the highway. 
Many U.S. highways have an unfortunate racist legacy. Federal planners often routed them directly through low-income black and brown neighborhoods, dividing communities and polluting the air. Now the Biden administration is trying to repair some of the harms. But as Drew Hawkins in New Orleans found, not everyone agrees on the best way to do that. For more than a century, Claiborne Avenue was the economic and cultural heart of black life in New Orleans. But then in the 1960s, Interstate 10 came along, and a section of it plowed right through Treme, one of the oldest black neighborhoods in the country. Claiborne Avenue now lies in the shadow of the elevated highway called the Claiborne Expressway. And over the years, there have been some efforts to enliven the empty and unused spaces underneath the highway overhead. Nine years ago, they put a playground here. But no children play here. There's trash and needles scattered around, and it's so loud, it's hard to hold a conversation. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Amy Stelly suggested I meet her here. She lives just over a block away in her childhood home. What about kids playing here? Kids never come here because kids are smart. It's the adults who aren't. It's the adults who built the playground under the interstate. Stelly is an artist and urban designer. She also started the Claiborne Avenue Alliance with other residents to try to do something about the noisy, polluting highway looming above. For her, there's only one way to fix it. Removal is the only cure. Steli and her alliance submitted a proposal to President Biden's Reconnecting Communities program. They were looking for funding to figure out what it would take to move the highway out of the neighborhood. I'm insisting on it because I'm a resident of the neighborhood, and I live with this every day. In many ways, the project seemed like the perfect candidate for reconnecting communities. The Claiborne Expressway was even specifically referenced by the White House when it announced the kind of projects the money was for. But Stelly's proposal was denied. Instead, the feds gave $500,000 to a different proposal submitted by city and state officials. They say the highway is just too important to be moved. And they'll use the money for upgrades like lighting and drainage and ramps. Steli says that's a waste of money. We shouldn't be using it in a way that is going to make living here more complicated or living here more dangerous. The winning proposal also suggested putting even more things underneath the interstate, like a public market complete with stages and performance spaces. Steli says that makes about as much sense as the playground. Yes, it's a foolish idea because you're going to be exposed to the same thing. But Steli hasn't given up. After her proposal was denied, she turned to the EPA and is now working to collect data on the health impacts. Oh, I forgot the sensor. When we met at the playground, Steli and two grad students were taking readings. So they're our scientists. The noise levels are as loud as a motorcycle engine and could cause permanent hearing damage. But it's not just the noise. Air pollution levels at the playground are far above the EPA's limits. We're over over on noise and pollution. We are way over. (laughs) One of the main pollutants the study is looking at is particulate matter 2.5. It's fine particulate matter. It's very small particles that come out of the tailpipe. Dr. Adrian Katner is with the LSU School of Public Health. She says if you breathe in too much PM 2.5, it can damage every system in your body causing a whole host of health problems. Katner is managing the EPA study. It could take up to three years to complete. There have been decades of research on highway pollution, but this is the first study focusing on the Claiborne Expressway. We're not inventing the science here. All I'm doing is I'm showing them kind of what we already know in science and then documenting it, giving them that data to then inform and influence policy. That's all 
I can do. Katner says their findings could help other communities fighting back against divisive infrastructure. For NPR News, I'm Drew Hawkins in New Orleans. This story comes from NPR's partnership with the Gulf States Newsroom and KFF Health News. Nevertheless, they could not understand that I'm a black man and I can never be a veteran. In 1944, the city of Durham, North Carolina, was riveted by the killing of a young black soldier and the trial of the white bus driver accused of shooting him. Now a group of activists has revived that soldier's story and the state has unveiled a historical marker on the place he was shot. WUNC's Jay Price reports. Private Booker T. Spicely was a 34-year-old cook from Philadelphia. He was stationed at Camp Butner, not far from Durham. It was a July Saturday, and he had come into the city on a weekend pass to spend time in Haytai, the thriving community that had become known as the Black Wall Street. But when some white soldiers boarded a city bus he was riding, Spicely fell afoul of one of the most notorious of the Jim Crow laws enforcing racial segregation in the South. He was asked to move toward the back of the bus, and he complied, but he had something to say about it. As part of the reemergence of Spicely's story, scholar and performer Sonny Kelly has created a one-man show about the contributions of black veterans to the nation's history. When he got off that bus, that bus driver was so indignant, he followed him off and shot him point-blank in the chest. Spicely hadn't even broken the law, just complained. It took 28 minutes for the all-white jury to acquit the driver. Retired public defender James Williams leads the committee that's reviving Spicely's story. One reason that it was important was in seeking some semblance of retrospective justice for Booker Spicely and his family, because I think it was time for us as a community to begin to carry that ball, to carry that weight. He notes that Spicely's story touches so many important parts of history, like how Jim Crow laws worked and how black troops were fighting for victory against fascism overseas and racism at home in what the influential black newspapers of the day called the Double V Campaign. While Herman Council, the white bus driver, pulled the trigger, it was Jim Crow and white supremacy that loaded that gun. Now, thanks to the committee Williams leads, Spicely's story, with all its lessons, will be told more widely. One of its first acts was to apply for the state marker. Williams also approached Duke Energy, the Charlotte-based power company, for funding to help tell Spicely's story. A forerunner of the company operated Durham's city buses for decades, including the one Spicely rode in. None of us had heard the story before. Indira Everett is a spokesperson for the company. And our Duke Energy team decided it was important to make sure the private Spicely legacy continued to live on. Her company endowed a scholarship fund in Spicely's name at the law school of NC Central, a historically black university. Meanwhile, UNC Chapel Hill developed a lesson plan for elementary school teachers based on Spicely's case and worked with Kelly to develop his show. Sonny Kelly wants to do more with Spicely's story. There's so many dynamics that vectored into his demise that it's not just as simple as racism and death. It's a lot of things, right? He's from the North. He's a soldier. What does it mean to be a soldier in World War II for him and for his family at that time? The historical marker for Spicely is a few hundred feet from the North Carolina School of Science and Math. Students participated in the dedication. Back in 1944, the school was a hospital. 
for whites. As he was dying, police took Spicely there, but under Jim Crow, he was refused treatment. One more lesson his death offers. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina. The quest for abolition. How do we arrive at this place we call abolition? What are the roads to such a destination? We arrive from the almost lost lessons of history, shaped by generations of ancestors who struggled their whole lives for that rare breath of freedom and yearned with all their hearts that we, their progeny, would one day breathe free air. For abolition stems from the long, hard struggle against slavery. For abolition meant the destruction of that system and the beginning of freedom. For a brief moment in time, freedom dawned over the land. But it was a mirage, a lie usurped by the greater lie of white supremacy, which plunged people into the darkness of terror and death, in fact, slavery by another name. Those unholy origins leads to the specter of mass incarceration, of the greatest incarceration of juveniles in global history, into the current system of imprisonment, what activists rightly call DBI, death by incarceration, or lifeless sentences of life forever. These are the twin faces of Janus, the same face reflected into its illusion of two. In 2003, Dr. Angela Y. Davis wrote, Is the Prison Obsolete? published by Seven Stories Press. It was a book before its time in that it really introduced readers to the notion of prison abolition. She showed how history featured the abolition of slavery, the convict lease system, and racial segregation. In another book titled Abolition Democracy, Davis explains tomorrow's struggles for free and true social change, as noted by a philosopher named Eduardo Mandieta, who penned the book's introduction, writing these words. For authentic democracy to emerge, Davis argues, abolition democracy must be enacted. The abolition of institutions that advance the domination of any one group over any other. Abolition democracy, then, is the democracy that is to come, the democracy in American history. Those that opposed slavery, lynching, and segregation. The prison system, a relic of that same cruel past, was the next logical step. Davis argued that the systems of white supremacy, of ruthless capitalism and labor exploitation led to the monster now before us, mass incarceration, in the millions. As a new generation has emerged, her insights are being studied, referenced, and actualized in ideas that confront the weighty shadow of the penitentiary. Another prison abolitionist and noted scholar Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore stated, 
Abolition requires we change one thing, which is everything. The presence and threat of prison sits like an incubus over the soul of society. It doesn't create. It doesn't treat. It doesn't help. It feeds. It harms. It cripples. And yes, it kills. It is a creation of state cruelty and carnage. It is the institutionalization of meanness, plain and simple, and movements, only social movements, can pull it from the throne of skulls. Now is the time. With love, not fear, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. It's over in the running from D's For you know it, coppers pointing at you telling you freeze And you can't afford a lawyer so they telling you plead Man, this shit worse than cancer like a fucking disease Living a nightmare, they telling his dream Look what they did to Martin Luther, bullet holes in our kings And they wonder why we never believe And they wonder why we never will leave Nigga, we poor Young niggas warned about that corner store, but the chinks on that. And you claiming that's your block, who you think on that? Quick sand in the hood and we gon' sink on that. You should think on that. Poison water out in Flint, they let them little babies drink on that. They don't care about us. You here at 4 o'clock today, there's a major step forward in the criminal justice efforts in Pennsylvania. Governor Josh Shapiro signed three new laws today. The biggest of those involves probation changes. It's an effort that got some superstar support from Philadelphia's own Meek Mill. Action News Race and Culture Reporter, Action News Race and Culture Reporter, Action News Race and Culture Reporter, Toronto Thomas joining us live now outside the National Constitution Center with a look at the legislation being called groundbreaking today. Toronto. It really is, Brian. Fittingly, these three new laws were signed here at the National Constitution Center, offering, in essence, a new level of freedom for so many people who are involved in the criminal justice center. Now, the probation reform law took five years to be in the works, and two people who joined forces to make it happen, a governor and a hip-hop star. Governor Josh Shapiro stood shoulder to shoulder with Meek Mill just about an hour ago as Shapiro signed three pieces of legislation. All of them are aimed at criminal justice reform, with one of them focusing on reform of the probation system. It changes the system in two ways. First, by aiming to shorten probation terms in the Commonwealth. That is key because there are more than 100,000 people on probation in Pennsylvania right now. The rate of recidivism? 58% due in part, Shapiro says, to the fact that probation terms include punishment for technical and non-criminal violations. It's a personal story for Meek Mill, first put on probation when he was a kid. He was sent back and forth to jail for violating probation terms for something as simple as popping a wheelie on a motorcycle. That got the North Philadelphia native a two to four year sentence. In recent years, he's focused on helping create criminal justice reform. For him, finally seeing the probation reform law get signed today was overwhelming. I'm at a point in my life like we all grew up in the streets and we try to be better, but they labeled us felons, mm -hmm. sent us back to jail. I had to fight against that the whole time to gain my respect and be who I am today, and I'm proud of that. So when Meek got out, we all talked together about how we could learn from Meek's experience and how we could help others. We didn't want Meek to be the final verse of the song. We wanted him to be the opening. 
And this song is just getting started because two other pieces of legislation were signed today, too. One of them is the Clean Slate Law. It seals the records for some nonviolent offenses. The other is the Dignity Law. It provides for the needs of women, including pregnant women, who are in prison. Now, the probation reform law got bipartisan support, overwhelming bipartisan support. And another group called the Reform Alliance, they're a national group, they also work to push this forward really across the country. Now, Meek Mill helped to bring attention to this issue, but he and lawmakers are clear, it's not just about him. It's about people across the Commonwealth who are affected by the probation system, who now have a new chance to start new lives because of these three new laws. We are live at the National Constitution Center, Toronto Thomas, Channel 6 Action News. Brian and Sarah. A fresh start for so many men and women. Toronto, thank you. If we allow the language of hate in our homes, when terms such as nigger are freely used when we are laying the foundation for these are new age hate crimes, the language of hate must be challenged. Just because, a, just before a skinhead gunned down a black man on the downtown streets of Denver last year, he asked, are you ready to die, nigga? Columbine eyewitness accounts reveal that just before Isaiah's killers fired, they asked, where is that little nigga? This is the language of hate, and this must go. A coalition of Coloradans launched a new initiative today. It's aimed at uncovering historic injustices against black Coloradans. Well, Denver 7's Brandon Richards shows us what they hope to learn through the creation of a new task force. Well, the Five Points neighborhood has served as the cultural hub for Denver's black community for many generations. You can see markers there that kind of showcase some of that history. But community leaders say other parts of that history need to be more closely examined to see the impact it still has on black Coloradans. History is an important part of life. We must ensure that all history of all people, is captured. Preserving it and understanding it are crucial. If your history is routinely deleted, then so are you. We have the responsibility as lawmakers to But these leaders say too much of Colorado's history has been lost. They say it's time to uncover the parts still hidden. Our goal is to make sure that there is equity across the state. State Representative Leslie Harrod is among the group of lawmakers in the Colorado Black Caucus who will introduce a bill next year to create a task force. The task force will study the history of discrimination against black Coloradans in housing, education, and the criminal justice system. We'll also be looking at environmental injustices and other uh, health care inequities that, um, that we know exist right here in Colorado. She hopes the findings will provide a roadmap showing where policy changes might be needed. Gentrification is not a joke. And though these leaders know all too well many of the racial disparities black Coloradans face, they expect to learn new things. Oh, I do think we'll see surprises in this study. I think the study might open our eyes to other discrimination, other pieces of inequities that we can address. And so I absolutely believe and know that there will be some surprises in this study and maybe even topic areas that we haven't yet considered. While the history they unearth might make some uncomfortable, they say it's the only true way to move forward. It's not something to turn our backs to or to shun. It's something that we have to address head on and in full force. That's what we're doing with this study. In Denver, Brandon Richard, Denver 7.
Their proposal calls for History Colorado to lead the effort, including selecting members of a task force. If the legislature approves this, they estimate the task force work will take up to two years to complete. The Rocky Mountain NAACP and parents demanding more transparency from the Cherry Creek School District after another racist viral video goes viral. Now the district says campus middle school students created this video off campus. Denver 7's Claire Lavazorio spoke with parents about their calls for change. Today, the superintendent of Cherry Creek School sent a letter to parents addressing the racist videos, one of which was created by students at Campus Middle School, telling parents students have and will face consequences for this type of behavior. I'm not racist, everyone. I just like <laughs> This video involving Campus Middle School students has parents and the Rocky Mountain NAACP pushing for more transparent disciplinary policy, not only within the Cherry Creek School District, but across Colorado. If I am a black child in a classroom knowing that my peers are laughing or sharing this video, what message does that send? It's the second racist video to go viral involving Greenwood Village Middle School students. The new video circulating on social media shows two girls repeatedly blurting out variations of the N-word. <laughs> Just last month. A racist video circulated at West Middle School. Now parents want a clear code of conduct that outlines what is acceptable behavior and what is not. For racist videos made off school property that are impacting the classroom. What we're trying to say within our district is we need to name it, we need to call it out, and we need to make sure that the policies are clear that we do not normalize this behavior. President of the Rocky Mountain NAACP, Portia Prescott, agrees. There needs to be a transparent form of discipline that isn't private. If you go viral with this type of language and you attend a public school in the state of Colorado, you will be expelled. In a statement, the Cherry Creek School District says it does not tolerate racism or hate of any kind. Students who engage in this kind of behavior will face consequences. These can range from restorative practices up to suspension and or expulsion. In Greenwood Village, I'm Claire Lavazorio for Denver 7. Yeah, the district says only that the students in that video were disciplined, but a spokesperson couldn't go into detail. Now, the NAACP is calling on those young people in the video and their parents to volunteer with the group and come forward and apologize. Simple fact is, Anderson, we got two cultures down here. White culture and the colored culture. Now, that's the way it always has been. That's the way it always will be. The rest of America don't see it that way, Mr. Mayor. The rest of America don't mean jack shit. You in Mississippi now. On May 20th, an 11-year-old boy was mistakenly shot by an officer with the Indianola Police Department. His family is now suing the department and the city for $5 million. 12 News' Morgan Gill spoke with the mother and her attorney about recent developments in the case. 11-year-old Adarian Murray was shot in the chest by Sergeant Greg Capers with the Indianola Police Department. His mother had asked the child to call the police after the father of one of her children showed up overnight. Attorney Carlos Moore tells us they were finally able to view body cam footage from that day seven months later. But the city is fighting in court to block the release of that video to the public. 
That video is part of the judicial record. It's the public record. And the public has a right to see what happened to that minor child on May the 20th, 2023. The mother has not asked for the video to be sealed from the public's view, but the city of Indianola has asked for it to be sealed. What is the city of Indianola trying to hide? Magistrate Judge David A. Sanders has sided with the city over the video issue, but more tells us they're appealing that decision to federal district court Judge Deborah Brown. He's demanding that the video be released without restrictions. You know, a lot of people have around the country have been praying and wondering what happened to that 11-year-old. He's doing somewhat better. He continues to get counseling on a weekly basis. The family is planning to file a second lawsuit to pursue claims under state law next month in Sunflower County Circuit Court. I feel disgusted, outraged, and emotionally damaged. But in all of those feelings, I still feel blessed. This has been a process. Every day I'm fighting for justice for my son. I want Officer Greg Capers terminated and held accountable for his reckless actions as a trained police officer. I never want another parent to feel the way I felt on May the 20th, 2023. Murray says she thanks everyone who has been supporting her through this trying time. Morgan Gill, 12 News. You smoke crack, don't you? You smoke crack, don't you? Look at me, boy. Don't you smoke crack? Yes, sir. Do you know what that does to you? Huh? No, sir. It kills your brain cells, son. It kills your brain cells. Now, when you're destroying your brain cells, you're doing the same thing as killing yourself. You're just doing it slower. Now, I say if you want to kill yourself, don't fuck around with it. Go on and do it expeditiously. K-12 through students caught with illegal drugs at school often face all kinds of consequences, suspension, expulsion, and in some cases, criminal charges. But amid an overdose crisis among teenagers, some school districts are trying a bold new experiment, focusing on rehabilitation instead of zero tolerance. Sequoia Carrillo has been reporting on those efforts and joins us now. Hi, Sequoia. Hi, Juana. Sequoia, I want to start by talking about the Los Angeles Unified School District. It is one of the school districts that's trying out this new approach. What drove them to try to act now? So this new approach comes in response to a growing number of student opioid overdoses on LAUSD campuses. Last fall, a student died in a school bathroom after a suspected fentanyl overdose. Shortly after that, LAUSD began stalking naloxone, a fast-acting medicine that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose in schools. And since then, the district says it's administered naloxone 55 times. That sounds like a high number. It's definitely a lot, but I have actually spoken to districts around the country who have used it more because this problem goes far beyond L.A., In 2021, fentanyl was involved in the vast majority of all teen overdose deaths, 84%, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Among adolescents, fentanyl-related overdose deaths nearly tripled from 2019 to 2021, with almost a quarter involving counterfeit pills. LAUSD Superintendent Alberto Carvalho told NPR this crisis just called for a different approach. We never treat that child, that student, as a criminal element or someone who broke a rule. We ought to address the root cause of the problem rather than focusing uh, on the possible consequence. We have a moral and professional obligation uh, to provide support. And Sequoia, what does rehabilitation look like in a school setting? 
So I was actually able to visit a school in L.A. where these efforts are playing out. But due to privacy concerns, we're not allowed to use tape of the students or faculty. I'm also not going to name the high school. It's a very high-need school, and district officials fear that publicizing it will make it known as a drug school. But it's a high school in central Los Angeles that the district is using as a pilot program for a new expanded approach for rehabilitation. If a student is found with or has taken drugs on campus, they won't be disciplined as if they got in a fight or cheated on a test. Instead, it will be taken as a health problem. The first step is to get that student well, get them to medical care and on their feet again. And after that, the school's efforts shift to getting the student back into the classroom. Right. But how do they go about doing that? So administrators and the school's psychiatric social worker work with the student's parents to create a re-entry plan. And these plans are tailored to meet each student's individual needs following an overdose, whether they're struggling with addiction or accidentally overdosed on a counterfeit pill. Check-ins with the in-school counselor, therapy sessions, and outpatient rehabilitation with the nearby children's hospital are all available at little to no cost to the student. Sequoia, is this something we're going to be seeing more of and perhaps that we're going to see other districts begin to try? Mm -hmm. In talks with other district officials, it seems that they do want to try this, but there's a huge barrier for a lot of them, which is funding. Holding students' hands through this process and reacclimating them to school takes a lot more effort than kicking a kid out of school. That extra work isn't free. It often takes adding positions or converting part-time mental health and addiction specialists to full-time. LAUSD is very much out in front of this, and it's not the first time. They were also a very early adopter of getting naloxone in all their schools. They have the need and they have the money to make the changes to fix it. As they roll it out to other schools who need it, we'll see how it plays out. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thanks for your reporting. Thank you. Turn off the lights. Light a candle. We continue to dive into the impact of the Moore County power grid attack. One year later, two Duke Energy substations that were shot up last December, sending thousands of people into unexpected darkness for five days. All these months later, the people responsible still have not been caught. Dewan Hogard joining us live now in Carthage. And Dewan, you're hearing from people impacted that are still waiting for answers. Yeah, Lauren, in fact, one person I actually talked to, they said they can understand a power outage due to inclement weather, such as heavy wind or even a hurricane, uh, but certainly not at the hands of someone doing something criminal. One year ago, Donnie Oldham found himself driving some 30 miles away to get his generator working when bad actors shot up two Duke Energy substations in Moore County last December. Had to go all the way up to Sanford to get gasoline to run it. The attack left people without power for days, but Donnie and his family made it through. But luckily, we had a fireplace, so we kept that going. That fireplace got a lot of use those those four or five days. You better believe it. Meanwhile, restaurant manager Cody Harrison says business was hit hard. Stuff just, you know, spoiled and had to go into the trash. We had to replace everything. So just essentially thousands of dollars just in the drain. The money spent on repairs and lost revenue made it challenging to pay wages. Insurance, you know, can't cover something like that. When you have to make repairs, it all comes out of pocket. So it can be frustrating when it's, you know, your own business. One year to date, the FBI says they're looking for a silver or light blue Honda Odyssey, model years 2011 to 2017. In conjunction with the FBI investigation into the attack, last week, Moore County Sheriff Ronnie Fields wrote on Facebook, I want to assure you our investigation into 
the power attacks has not stopped. My detectives and our partners at the FBI continue to work tirelessly on this case, as is Duke Energy spending time and money on repairing the damage that was done and updating grid infrastructure. This was an attack on, on, a, on a community. This was an attack on uh, our employees, too, who live and work in that community. So it's personal. Personal for people like Donnie and Cody. Considering it is how I you know, pay my bills and you know, eat food and take care of the people around me, it's pretty frustrating, you know, waking up one day and not knowing if you're going to be able to go to work. And right now I'm standing at one of the two uh, substations that was uh, uh, targeted in that attack. We're here in Carthage. The other one was in West End. Uh, the security camera behind me is something that Duke Energy had installed to help protect some of the uh, security and the infrastructure here. Uh, but one of the most important things to note earlier this year, Senate Bill 58 went into effect. That would increase some rather stiff penalties for anyone who commits crimes against these sorts of utilities. A combined reward is up to $100,000 for information leading to an arrest. We're live in Carthage tonight. Dwan Hogart, Abyss 11, Eyewitness News. When we first met Kathy, she was a hurricane evacuee, surprised to find herself in Utah. Utah? I was really afraid there because I noticed I didn't see any black people. I said, no, they probably come in. You know, they'll come out when it's all over. Maybe they're thinking, they're thinking everybody's like me. They don't want to get involved with this action, but they'll come out. <laughs> when I noticed they wasn't coming out, I went to getting frightened living there by myself. When a lady told me it's 1% black in Utah, in Pleasant Grove, Utah, I said, why did people send me here? There I am, can't sleep, thinking somebody's going to come and just lynch us. <laughs> She's threatened their ability to stay within the complex. A Midvale family hoping the FBI will now get involved after video has surfaced of their neighbors' racist rants that have gone viral. You've probably seen them by now. Thanks for being with us for 2 News at 5. I'm Heidi Hatch. And I'm Jim Spiewak. So we told you today Catherine Smith was arrested and then later released after video showing her yelling racial slurs in derogatory terms at her neighbors. Amanda Gilbert is joining us live over at the Salt Lake County Jail. So Amanda, how long was Smith actually there? Yeah, Unified Police arrested Catherine Smith last night, but she bailed out at some point today and was released. Now, she was arrested for outstanding warrants. Unified Police booked the woman in this video going viral, Catherine Smith, into jail. This comes after her neighbors, who don't want to be identified for safety and privacy, say they've captured dozens of videos since May. Attorney Tyler Ayers is representing the family. Were you surprised when they did arrest her last night? Or? I was actually very surprised. I didn't hear about it until this morning, and I had to double check it. Do you think that's in reaction to the media coverage? There's no question that it's reaction to media coverage. But Smith was not arrested for these videos. She was arrested on outstanding warrants related to misdemeanor charges. Documents state she's accused of property damage for ripping up a neighbor's garden. She's been cited for speeding and disorderly conduct. Documents also state she's facing a misdemeanor assault charge for poking her pregnant neighbor in the stomach. The world would believe that some woman sitting in the back of her chair in her backyard would spew that out about another woman giving birth. You know, I mean, that's about as vile a thing as I've ever heard. Was it criminal? Technically, maybe not. But was there a threat in there? 
Absolutely. Iris is meeting with the FBI about this case. What I hope comes from this meeting is that the FBI recognizes that there have been significant civil rights violations. They're going to look at the uh, racism of the departments as well and say, hey, Unified, you know, are these programs working? Now, that meeting with the FBI was at four today, waiting to hear back. And Unified Police did not release any follow-up statements today. They did release a statement yesterday where they said they were working on long-term solutions. Amanda Gilbert, KUTV, 2 News. This morning, a lifetime of happiness has turned into a living nightmare of racism for a Conway couple. They're fed up and now begging the city and county for help. Our Michaela Evans spoke with the couple, and Michaela, they also caught something very disturbing on camera. Lauren Darren, this couple is quite shaken up. Sean and Monica Williams, like many other, retired here in the Grand Strand, but they tell me they're no longer sure if it's safe for them to stay. The end result is we do not feel comfortable. Video of this burning cross in a neighbor's yard on Thanksgiving weekend is the last straw for Sean and Monica Williams. Lo and behold, there was a cross burning about eight feet away from our fence. And uh, we were speechless because we've never experienced something like that. The couple moved into this house in Conway as the perfect retirement home. We love the house. We love the area. But the Williams say their next door neighbors have made the last two years a nightmare. Blatant with the N-word. Um, he's chased off our surveyors. He's chased off people from the water and sewer department. The couple installed a fence hoping for peace, but it did not work. The Williams finally called Horry County Police. Officers arrested 28-year-old Warden Butler and 27-year-old Alexis Hartnett for second-degree harassment. Police reports claim Hartnett yelled racial slurs at the couple, which officers' body cameras captured. The reports also show Butler posted the couple's address on Facebook, saying he was, quote, going to make them pay. Butler is no stranger to the law, with at least five arrests for assault and disorderly conduct. But the Williams say police arresting the couple is not enough. They were out the next day. So now what are we to do? Still live next to a cross-burning racist? We feel threatened. We feel that not enough laws are in place to deal with this. And there needs to be some accountability. South Carolina is one of two states without a hate crime law. And Williams says she does not want hate to run them out of their dream neighborhood. We just don't um, want to to move. We've had this conversation and this is really a heartbreaking and hard decision for us. We're just highly disappointed that this behavior is taking place in this day and age. There are a few cities in South Carolina that have passed hate crime ordinances or resolutions, but Conway Mayor Barbara Blaine Bellamy tells me there's nothing the city can do and that it's up to the state. Live at the Alert Desk, Michaela Evans, WMBF News.
Exclusive reporting shows that Navy Federal Credit Union has the widest disparity, the widest disparity in conventional mortgage approval rates between white and black borrowers of any major lender. This is the nation's largest credit union. It serves military members, defense personnel, veterans, and their families. And CNN's Renee Marsh found that it rejected more than half its black conventional mortgage applicants last year. But it really is a nice neighborhood, you know. Baba Tandi, a Kenyan immigrant turned Texas entrepreneur, knew this was his dream home the moment he saw it. It's in a highly sought-after school district that his son so desperately wanted to attend for its basketball program. So how many homes did you look at before you found this one and said this was it? We had about six, but this was the one that we, we all wanted, and we were all praying to get this one. Otandi's first choice for his mortgage was Navy Federal Credit Union. It services military members, defense personnel, veterans, and their families, and is the largest credit union in the country. I was the CEO of my company, so I had a pretty good income. Your credit was in the 700s. Mm-hmm. You had recently sold your house. Mm-hmm. You had $100,000 for the down payment, which was more than 20%. Correct. I mean... CNN reviewed Otandi's financial documents. He even had a pre-approval letter from Navy Federal in hand, but just two weeks before closing. They got a denial. They sent me a letter saying, we're sorry, but your application has been denied. Were you stunned, surprised? I mean, I was stunned. I was shocked. I was hurt. The denial letter listed excessive obligations in relation to income as the reason. When they denied is when we came back and said, oh man, there's something else going on. And what did you think that something else was? Discrimination. But it wasn't just a tandy. Thousands of other black applicants were also rejected. According to a CNN analysis of federal consumer protection data, last year, Navy Federal Credit Union only approved 48 percent. That's less than half of its black applicants for conventional home mortgages. White borrowers were approved more than 75 percent of the time. It's the biggest gap among the top 50 lenders. The data also shows Navy Federal was more than twice as likely to deny black mortgage applicants than white ones, even when different variables, including income, debt, property value, and down payment percentage were the same. I feel validated at one point, but also I feel a bit of anger because it shouldn't be happening. Two weeks after Navy Federal rejected him, another bank approved Atandi for a mortgage. Navy Federal Credit Union denied CNN's request for an on-camera interview. In a statement, it said it is committed to equal and equitable lending practices and that CNN's recent analysis does not account for major criteria required by any financial institution to approve a mortgage loan. That includes credit scores, which are not public. Navy Federal declined to provide additional data. We asked Navy Federal why Bob Otandi's loan was denied, but they declined to comment, citing member privacy. 
CNN's analysis does not prove discrimination, but it does show dramatic racial disparities in who Navy Federal rejects and approves for conventional mortgage loans. The black-white homeownership gap and the Latino-white homeownership gap today are both wider than they were in 1968 when we passed the Federal Fair Housing Act. Lisa Rice has spent decades as a fair housing advocate. She says the disparities in Navy Federal's lending data are alarming and an extreme example of a bigger problem. It's definitely a larger systemic issue. And we know that we have a long history of redlining and a long history of lending discrimination in this nation. Well, all of that, that data that is sort of tainted with bias is being used to develop the credit scoring systems. We got the house, thank God, and we moved on. But what about the ones who are denied? What about the ones who now don't, can't get their own dream house? It's something that's going to affect the generation all the way down to their kids. Well, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which oversees consumer lending, uh, says that they do not comment on specific institutions, but they do conduct their own investigations to ensure that banks and credit unions are following fair lending practices, Jake. What should people do if they think they have been discriminated against? Well, you have your local housing and urban development, uh, as well as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Those are two agencies in which you should file a complaint if you feel you've been discriminated against. I've had people reach out to me since we filed this story and said, should we avoid uh, putting any demographic information on our documents? And the downside of that is that we then no longer have that data to track like we did with this story today. Fascinating stuff. Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Horrible. He's pure alligator, pure white. Albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate because they look funny. Albino A rare white alligator was born in a Florida park. Measuring 19.2 inches long, this baby alligator is making history just by being born. She's a leucistic alligator, best characterized by their translucent white skin and blue eyes. Mark McHugh, president and CEO of Gatorland, explains. So leucistic alligators are, are unique and different from albino alligators. Now there was 18 of these brothers were born in the swamps of Louisiana back in 1987. That's how rare this is. There's only seven of them left in the world. Three of them are right here at Gatorland. The rare white gator was born with a brother who has the greenish coloring typically associated with alligators. We brought our veterinarian in. We want to check that baby out, make sure she's in perfect health. Oh, she was. We looked at her eyes, checked out inside her ears. This little white alligator and her normal colored little brother are just beautiful and feisty little critters. In the wild, the bright color of the leucistic alligator makes the young easy targets for predators, according to the Audubon Nature Institute, which might account for why there aren't many white alligators. She's cute now, but remember, this currently pocket-sized reptile could one day grow to over eight feet long. For Inside Edition Digital, I'm T.C. Newman. I do not think... Uh, alligators are cute. Just want to get that on the 
record and I've been on the planet long enough um, you don't either I don't hear people say oh I saw the cutest Alan. I nobody says that I'm aware of some gators now I've heard that I got these fly gators on boy match go down in the south you hear some black people but come on now come on now and I even researched since we were talking about the leucistic critters apparently there is dispute some white people think that leucistic critters that that is a mutation in the same way as albinism that's you know just a different type of mutation uh, melanin deficiency lack of color but there is debate some white people think it is a mutation others say that it is not it's just cute whiteness lack of color context of white supremacy gusty renegade and for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date saturday december 16 2023 so i have been told our weekly compensatory call-in dial in if you have thoughts questions observations uh the number 605 313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate number again 605-313-5164 the code Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate not for spectators we will be here at minimum on Tuesday 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific white guest only looking forward to it continuing some of our discussion about Alabama and white supremacy Racism had some of that earlier in the week, but at minimum on Tuesday, might even do one, uh, Monday as well. Uh, you can always check for updates uh, on social media, on uh, formerly Twitter, at Until Justice. Uh, you can check. We have our Facebook group, Facebook page, our other social media sites. Uh, folks can let us know if you think there would be an easier location for you to make sure you can keep tabs, all of the cows, broadcasts, and such uh, and or uh, if there are any alerts that would make it easier, make sure you all know, even though I would think social media and all that would work. But let me know. There are updates and such that would make it easier. But we'll be here on Tuesday, maybe Monday as well. But for sure, Tuesday, same time for all of the programs, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. I still have people contact me with confusion about when the program comes on. The time of the cows never changes. Every program comes on at the same time. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. The time has not changed in years. Really, you could lock, check what time? 8 p.m. Eastern any day of the week and just check and see are they on you really could do that just to you know make sure there's no confusion but 
workplace racism, the book club, every broadcast, guests, it's all the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Hit the blog, racism-notes.blogspot.com, racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button in the top right corner. Beneath the PayPal button, you'll see the links for Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested, kept us on the air for 15 years if we get to February, uh, you can always share the broadcast uh, on social media. Let other non-white people, victims of white supremacy, know about the cows. Share specific broadcast guests that you think would help non-white people get a more accurate understanding of what white supremacy racism is and how it works. In fact, there's so many non-white people who have problems with food and such could share some of the many many programs that we've done over the years on food and health and trying to get children to eat better and all of that that alone easy segue into context of white supremacy counter racism solving this problem a uh, few tidbits before we check out see folks who dialed in uh, and or wrote in if they have any commentary suggestions to add uh, let's see the first few audio segments that we heard they shared about uh, Rudy Giuliani former mayor of New York City and Time Magazine person of the year uh, that he lost civil lawsuit defamation 148 million dollar judgment uh, where he and many other white people uh, lying on Ruby Freeman black female and Wantrea uh, Moss they were calling her Shay. Now, I guess that is her nickname. It has it written out, Wantrea, Arshay, and then in uh, quotes, Shay Moss. I just, I always feel that type of way when white people, really anybody, but especially white people, reporters, journalists, when they get very familiar and start talking about non-white people on a first name basis, I'm sure you have not been kicking it uh, with Miss Moss, Miss Freeman, checking in on them you all go out and get tea you've been helping them through all this like how are you talking to me on a first name basis miss moss thank you i'm an adult or trying to be anyway all that they had to endure that's another one where i think when they come and malign black people and say that this problem racism really is our fault Remember, we even had Paul Ifaomi Grant, victim of white supremacy, all the way on the other side of the planet, said we, talking about black people specifically, not even all the non-white people in the U.S., just the ones classified as black. We deserved President Trump because of our shiftlessness in replacing white supremacy with justice. We had him as a guest on the program. Like, what in the world? <laughs> Jeez, what is up with that? We deserve President Trump. That's why I've said to all of them. When people come bashing black people for not voting, like, wait a minute. <laughs> that is not the problem at all. It's not even close. It's not even close. The problem remains white people. 
We are election workers, man. You don't get no better than that. We went out and voted and try and encourage other people to vote and carry out this whole progress or really sham. I was going to say process, but this whole sham of democracy make it seem like we're not in a system of white supremacy. We go and participate in all of that. And then you're going to come and lie on us and compare us to drug dealers and drug smugglers and all of that. Might even be fortunate that they won this lawsuit. I could easily see a day any time really where Miss Moss, Miss Freeman, it would have just been, oh, well, you'd have been accused and maligned and can't get a job anywhere. You go to fill out the form on it. Fraud. Gangster. System of white supremacy racism, but that's another one I would bring up when, because it'll be tons of non-white people. So that's the problem with you all. You black people don't vote like that. That that that. I think Miss Moss and I think they voted, encouraged other people to vote. That's not the problem at all. Uh, they had the report on in vitro fertilization, and then it switched to IVG. Wow. I even had to look. They have many reports now. Because I, I was thinking, how much does all this cost? Thousands. Who knows? Lots of variants. And, and we've had some of our listeners who wrote in white people allow some non-white people in on all this technology and know-how where they said, hey, sometimes it doesn't catch the first time, meaning you don't have a successful pregnancy during one round of IVF. So you might have to have two times three times so if it costs twenty thousand dollars you have to do it three times that's sixty thousand dollars if my negro math is correct it could be a really pricey process which just further the system of white supremacy racism and we've talked about all of this reproductive rights racism however you want to frame it uh dorothy roberts killing the black body Harriet A. Washington, that's in Medical Apartheid too, where she talks about all this, but we've uh, addressed all of it in eugenics. We've addressed all of this over and over where white women, they get fertility clinics to help them have children and even gay white men, gay white women, LGBTQ, transgender, all the rest of it. No problem. They get clinics to help them and even maybe grant money, see if we could help bring down, defer some of the costs for all of that. Get you a great health care plan. Whereas the Negro, ah, man, see if we can get you some, uh, some of that birth control that you wear five years. So you don't have any of these children. Maybe it'll give you cancer while you've got it in. Maybe we won't even be able to get it out of you. Yes. Talked about all this in layers. And in fact, I had just mentioned literally by name some of these very subject matters. We did just talk, have the author uh, J.C. Hallman on to talk about, say, anarcha, right? Reproductive rights right there. So-called father of gynecology this past Wednesday. I literally just mentioned Dorothy Roberts and all of her work. Lo and behold, she is coming here to Seattle to talk about that very subject matter reproductive rights and even had the book that I quoted killing the black body she's written many other books but they had that one up mentioned specifically she'll be here in a matter of days white people permitting might go attend maybe not have to see multiple time guest on the program no fan of the cows Dorothy Roberts but 
amazing scholarship. Uh, next, they had the all of the technology and the concerns that parents have about all of these new gadgets and everything else. I do not have offspring. But when I heard that report, hey, now, Dr. Welsing a decade ago said reading more important than watching television. And she said, hey, all of those screens, people are getting addicted, especially young children. You want to watch all that. Be careful about all that. Maybe don't give that child that phone so early. Now they're talking even beyond. I even had a flashback when I heard this report. The end of 2017, literally about this time, they were doing an, a wrap up end of the year for 201 or excuse me for 2016. Beg your pardon for the wrap up for 2016 going into 2017. And they were talking about uh, all of the technological advance, advances and all of this. And they were saying, man, you could have a really, you know, kind of hot and explicit date. Uh, and be in two separate houses. They were talking about how the virtual technology was really advancing and it made so much progress. Now, this was seven years ago. I cannot imagine all of the different types of advances in it. Like, just wow. I would really give a caution. Whatever is on your child's wish list and all the rest of it, I would give great pause. I just played that report last week where they were talking about how meta they're having all of these difficulties getting the pedophiles, the child rapists off their platform. They talked about all these different apps and gaming platforms and everything else. It's online and same sorts of vulnerabilities, the predators and child rapists and just all the, and the data mining and just wow um, I do not have offspring but that would be quite a bit to think about before you just go willy nilly and get them all of these newfangled uh, gadgets and everything else I mean it would be a lot to think about do some research maybe uh, let's see the when they told us about I-10 down in Louisiana, we've talked about that before explicitly. We read about that. I even pondered going back. Gary Rivlin, Katrina after the flood. He was a guest on the program. White man suspected racist. And we double dipped metaphor. We read the book in the book club uh, 2015. That was 10 years from the flood, levee failure, all the rest of it. But he talks about the construction of I-10 and how that destroyed uh, black businesses, uh, areas where black people lived in New Orleans, in New Orleans, and uh, it never recovered from all of that, called it nothing short of death, putting that highway in that exact location. And then all of the toxins, pollution, no, even the noise aspect of it. And I mean, that's no short shrift. That's Harriet A. Washington. Again, a terrible thing to waste all that environmental racism, but the noise, the grandcestered. And in fact, let me hush again. Do you hear that? Pen drop. Now, when they were talking to those folks down in Louisiana, all that, 
And you got to say, hey, can you hear me? How you doing? Thanks so much for y'all coming. Man, just your brain computer, when you're in that, and it's just loud. All the time, loud. You got to turn the TV up loud so you can hear the Tyler Perry. You got to turn the music up loud. You got to yell on the phone. You can't even just sit outside and think. Didn't the grand talk about that specific type of pollution? In addition to all the rest of it. And they say, we can put the children here. We put the playground. We read about that in D.B. Connolly, A World More Concrete, one of the best books about white supremacy racism, even though it's specific to Florida, but it starts off with the exact same thing. They put a freeway up in southern Florida, destroy where black people live. Oh, we messed over the Negroes. I know what. We'll put a playground underneath the freeway for you all. And then, and then, this is the same state where they said we're going to get the EPA and do a study. This is the same state of Cancer Alley. I remember the days when we had an F on environmental racism. Those days have passed. Not anymore. I don't know if we have an A, but we don't have an F and we don't even have a D, I think, at this point. This is the same state as Cancer Alley. The EPA just dissed them like, oh, yeah, seems like the niggers get all the cancer here. We should do that. Well, one second. Yeah, we'll get back to that. <laughs> like, what? What do you mean we're going to get the EPA to come in here and do a study? To what ends? Is that going to get the freeway taken down? Get us some bottled water? Get some of the things cleaned up from Katrina that never got fixed? Come on. Uh, let's see. The And they called it divisive infrastructure. I don't even know what that is. Divisive infrastructure? When we talked about all this, we called these structures of white supremacy racism. They even had a report in the L.A. Times that is exactly what they called them, divisive structures. What is that? Continuing, uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, I have so much respect for him, even though we don't have the same views on racism. Duh, most of us don't. But I have so much uh, appreciation, regard. He's been, He was on death row in Pennsylvania for over like decades and then he's been in greater confinement for almost a half century at this point he still stays informed has continued writing researching reading he used the term white supremacy today I was stunned I have been listening to reading his reports and information for well over 20 years he infrequently uses the term white supremacy now he was talking about uh prison and slavery specifically and how it's changed over time even gave reference to one of our guests Douglas Blackman uh, slavery by another name but he he said it a couple of times in their white supremacy I was stunned like wow what is what is going on hmm. and again and I've said consistently he's in a very vulnerable I mean the most he was on death row for all that time easily could have died and I think he had COVID over the pandemic years and hepatitis on top of all that. So, I mean, pfft, victims guaranteed qualified for sure. Highest regard. I'm just saying in a vulnerable position where 
he is dependent upon white people and I think white women Noel Hanrahan and other white women even my BFF Amy Goodman in there to be able to even help amplify his voice so that people remember him know he's still alive and all of that so I don't know that might curtail how accurate he can be but mark that he did say it white supremacy why he's in greater confinement uh I I say our audio segments, they're never random. They're always deliberately sequenced. So we heard Mumia, Pennsylvania, and then to their so-called criminal justice reform in Pennsylvania. And they had Meek Mill out talking about how this has impacted his life and being in greater confinement, just out riding a bike and ah, you're a hoodlum and a criminal. Ah, That's what we wanted to do uh, to you in the first place, right? All happening in the same area. Uh, Let's see. The we heard the same transition uh, with Colorado. Well, we started off in Colorado. They were talking about uh, they wanted a task force. These were black people who said they wanted to study how racism, white supremacy has impacted black Coloradans in all areas of people activity. Wow, expansive. This will take years. Now, some folks said, why don't you be the task force yourself? You certainly could do that. They could organize, meet, do all of that, publish books, reports, and all of that. But if the state of Colorado, they have the resources, they could put a budget together, give you office space, everything that you need, and access to information maybe even have power to get depositions from people to come in and you know testify about things or at minimum get access so state authority could provide more resources so that you have a, a greater assessment of this problem just one thought but i mean hey you could do both maybe they maybe they do will have a private citizen task force and then they'll have the state level too but i thought with all of that man they should make isaiah shoals in fact, that's maybe even what they should name the task force or put his name at the front of the report. Isaiah Shoals. The audio that prefaced that segment, that was Vicki Buckley, the late Victoria Buckley, former Colorado state representative, victim of white supremacy, black female. That was Victoria Buckley. She was speaking at the NRA convention in Colorado, 1999. That was literally days after Isaiah Shoals was killed at Columbine High School. She, Miss Buckley, she was at Isaiah Shoals' funeral, unless I've been mistaken. And then she went to the NRA and gave that speech where she also mentioned James Byrd Jr., who had been lynched in Texas one year before Columbine 1998. All that's forgotten because it's now the Matthew Shepard hate crime bill. And oh yeah, James Jr. Yeah. But Vicki Buckley talked about all of that. Isaiah Scholes being called a Negra put that on the front of the task force report. Got to be a whole section on Columbine, right? Racism right there. Victoria Buckley, state representative of Colorado, she died two months after she gave that speech. Age of 51. Heart problems. Might even be connected to that speech that she gave in front of thousands 
so controversial. I think Charlton Heston introduced her. They didn't even want them to speak and to go there and say all of that. Dead in two months at the age of 51. Put that in the Colorado Task Force report on racism as well. Anywho, we read all that, did all that about Columbine. And so that was a two for the segue. We heard Rocky Mountain High, right? That's like the theme song for Colorado. Cherry Creek, they got the incident where these young middle schoolers, so that's like 12, 11-year-old white girls talking about these niggers that they don't like and all this. This is the second video where this has happened at the same school, Cherry Creek in Colorado. I said, dang, white children making videos and racist slurs and all did we read about this with Reb and Vodka they do the videos and Negras they don't like and classmates they don't like and all this like didn't we We read y'all haven't made that's why I said Columbine has to be a whole segment it's like dang y'all haven't made any progress on this at all it's been 25 years bullying in the school and all that you haven't made any progress at all do they know Isaiah Scholl's name it shouldn't be you shouldn't be allowed to graduate school in Colorado Isaiah Scholl's who is that Isaiah Scholl I don't I don't follow give me give me a hint Isaiah like <laughs> blasphemy how is that you didn't go to the memorial what you didn't see bowling what well, bowling for Columbine wouldn't help because they didn't mention Scholl so huh. Colorado task force man we did all that matter of fact maybe put some of the cows work on Columbine and Sue Klebold in the task force asking too much maybe Uh, let's see the I looped it a few times when they spoke with the reporter in Philadelphia I'm just the importance of words culture may have been the word for the day because it was mentioned so many times in so many different reports but when they spoke with the reporter in Pennsylvania Philadelphia where they were talking about the reforms and they were going to go talk to Meek Mill victim they said action news race and culture reporter Taronda Thomas T-A-R-H-O-N-D-A Thomas and it says in her reporter byline that this position race the action news race and culture reporter was created in 2021 and Miss Thomas she is the first to hold this position I certainly don't have a problem with the lovely qualified Miss Thomas but race and culture reporter I don't know what that is it seems like a kind of tacky name where okay you're going to be talking about issues related to the Negras and racism why don't you just call it the really hey why don't we call you our system of white supremacy journalist reporter our racism reporter it's racism not race Mr. Fuller and others have said that for years if not decades at this point it's racism not race and then the culture what does that mean that's another one that I've noted They'll just throw that word culture out there as opposed to when they're talking about white supremacy racism. They'll just put culture out there. They'll even sometimes they'll call as opposed to victim of white supremacy. And say 
cultural activist. What does that mean? Even race and culture, what does that mean? When they have white people talking about white things, it will not be whatever, such an and culture. It will not be that. They will put something specific to what they're talking about. It is so vague and nondescript. Like what? What? Race and culture? Racism reporter. You get the alliteration and everything, but white supremacy reporter. Countering racism reporter. Counter racism reporter. There would be lots of titles that would be way better, way more accurate, way more specific than the race and culture reporter. No disrespect to Miss Thomas's parents, but because her name is so unique and one that I think many people would attribute to say, oh, that's one of those Negra type names. I don't know. I don't think too many people would say Taronda Thomas. I bet that's someone classified as white. I don't think because of that, it even makes it more like, oh, yeah, this is our definite Negro position talking about Negro things, Negro culture, Taronda Thomas. Yes. No disrespect on her name. It's nothing wrong with it. I'm just the problem is race and culture. That's the problem. Nothing wrong with her name at all. Uh, the and they even said with Pennsylvania, they said they were going to add the dignity law for pregnant inmates so they get the resources that they need. I certainly uh, approve, support anyone in greater confinement getting help that they need, resources. Hey, Tupac Shakur, Dr. Afini Shakur Davis, she was pregnant in greater confinement, so I certainly support that. But I mean, dang, the dignity that's another one. Can we get a better? They always trying to put some uh, dignified slaves, dignified. <laughs> How much dignity should I have as a victim of white supremacy? Dignified. Uh, Let's see. The Indianola Police Department, Adarian Murray, that's the 11 year old who was shot. I one want to make sure I emphasize that it was a black officer who shot. Adarian Murray, Greg Capers, black male, victim of white supremacy. So just get that still super incorrect and all the rest. But this is a black male in this shooting. Equally important in my view, this shooting and they included it in the report. No one. They said no charges to be filed for Adarian Murray being shot. He survived, thankfully. But importantly, all of this started they said a Darian Murray, his black mother, she said one of her children's fathers came to the residence. Conflict began. I said this way back when I heard about all of this the first time. Neely Fuller Jr. again. First time. Last time. That's why I talk about all the time minimizing conflict with other non-white people. That is one of the enormous, unless I'm mistaken, I mean, unless I really, I missed the boat someplace. That is one of the main messages of Neely Fuller Jr. That is one of the guiding principles of the 10 stops and what he talks about all of the time. That's what Dr. Welsing talks about with black self-respect. Same thing. 
better understanding of white supremacy racism minimizing conflict with other non-white people specifically with the first time last time mr fuller says that yep for decades that's another one this is not no new thing like hey man not gonna be going around getting in conflict with other dark people and then asking white people to go all right settle down behave and i'm certainly as some privileged black male I'm not going to go get an attitude and I'm mad. Whitey done beat me down and we're losing and lame. And I'm going to go take out my frustrations on a black female. Like, now you got to be all kinds of cowardly for that. First time. Last time. It's many reasons for that, but I mean a Darian Murray right in your face. That's so common. We start out the conflict and then someone else has to be called and it escalates into who knows what. Is someone going to jail? Is somebody going to die? Are many people going to jail? Somebody going into foster care? All of the above, maybe. Who knows? Minimize conflict. In my view, that has got to be. That's unless I'm misinformed that is the guiding principle for the 10 stops minimizing this sort of activity these sort of incidents so we're not having to call some armed officer can you please come help us resolve can you get him to leave oh man he hit me that's it's almost 2025 man that's embarrassing and a lot of that playing around with sex Anyway, let's see. The grid attacks. I'll get that one in and then I have one little bonus from one of our guests this week and then we'll nab folks. Uh, The grid attacks in North Carolina, speaking of a year, right at the end of 2022, they had attacks on the power grid here in Washington state right at Christmas time, so-called. And then they had the same thing down in North Carolina. Now, down in North Carolina, I think they lost power for a substantial number of days here in Washington state. I don't think it was in like the Puyallup region. That's a little bit south of Seattle, uh, but I don't think they lost power for very long. It was a much short, shorter experience, and that didn't have any impact on me or folks in Seattle at all. That was a little bit outside the city. But I remember the attack down in North Carolina. They made arrests of individuals classified as white here in Washington state. And I think those arrests happened pretty early within 2023. I think it was within 60 days of the attacks. It's been a year and they haven't arrested anybody for what happened in North Carolina last year. They reported that at least one person died from all that. Nobody. In fact, they did an investigation. One of the journalists outfits in North Carolina They said they had a difficult time even getting information from the police. What's up with the investigation? It's ongoing. Uh, We should hope so. Do you have any suspects? No. Did you give us any information? Nope. Have any of the suspects been cleared? Nope. (laughs) Like, dang, can you? What the deal, man? Like, that's enough like you can do all that jumping up and down running about oj simpson if you can imagine a world scotty reed 
any other black people in North Carolina mad about Jonathan Farrell, mad about the Wilmington 10, mad about the Wilmington purge, just a whole lot of things, mad that Michael Jordan sold the Hornets, mad about a whole lot of things, right, in North Carolina. Okay, we're mad. We're going to go attack the energy grid, knock out the power. We're going to show these folks who's in charge. You messed over black people in the Tar Heel State for long enough. You think Mr. Reed banned the black people? Christopher Everett, documentary filmmaker, talking about the history of racism in North Carolina. You think Mr. Everett, other black North Carolinians, you think they could hide out on the lam, be incognito, keep a low profile for a year? Whitey is none the wiser. You got to be, and, 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 and they got Negroes coordinated in other parts of the country doing the same thing because we're also mad about how they messed over black people. So we're all going to attack and do Like, are you serious? And they can't do anything? We don't know. The Negro is sly, cagey, just got to hope for the best. <laughs> like, are you serious? Are you serious? They had video surveillance and everything. I think in the report, written report, they had uh, a vehicle that was suspicious and they had video camera footage from the incident that seemed like they would have to be, they would have to have very detailed knowledge to go and actually use gunfire to cause this outage. Like, what are you shooting at? How do you know what you're shooting at? Like, where did you get all this information from? Was this an inside job? Like, come on, come on, come on. We got listeners in North Carolina. I think we had some people who were impacted by all of this. They did lose electricity, and this was suspected racist act. I kept saying Turner Diaries right there, Dr. William Pierce. Usual suspects. Anyway, since that was Christmas last year, folks should remember that and make sure that just in case it is cold and all the rest of it, generator, anything else, especially if you have young children, just in case. Anyway, and they called them bad actors. I remember they used that same language last year. Bad, suspected terrorists. People died as a result of that. Bad actors? Was Nicolas Cage involved? Tyler Perry? Tell me something. Anyway, uh, the credit union piece was important too. Reminded me of the white wall with Emily Flitter, she was with us at the beginning of the year talking about how all the different ways that white uh, race soldiers at the banks practice racism and keep black people from getting funds and resources to improve their lives and do constructive things. But white woman, Emily Flitter, that's how we started the year. She was with us right January 2023. Book was brand new at that time. I guess it still is. Hadn't been out too long. But we had multiple guests on the program this week. Dr. Jeff K. Ward, Cowbell, was with us on Tuesday. Now, we have a white guest-only policy. I mentioned, first heard about Dr. Jeff K. Ward on the compensatory call-in just a few weeks back, literally. It was October 2023. They had the report uh, from Kansas State where they were talking about the lynching of John Buckner. This happened right at the end of the 19th century, and they're trying to get a memorial established to this lynching and oh this was terrible and all of that 
and the white people in Valley Park, Kansas said, no way. We don't want that raping Negro memorialized here. And he wasn't even lynched here technically. So, you know, get on down the road. We don't want any marker here. Get on out of here. Uh, when I heard the report, I looked just to get a visual of Dr. Ward and was like, whoa, is he a white person, non-white person? I wasn't sure. We had people who looked at some of his background information and said, oh, he went to Hampton in Virginia, uh, HBCU. So I think this is a non-white person. So we went back and forth about it, had him on the program on Tuesday. Obviously, that was one of the first questions that I asked. Man, oh, man. Now, we had prepared. I contacted him, requested. I want to talk about racist jokes, which he had written about in detail. We did. I wanted to talk about John Buckner, the lynching and white people's resistance in the uh, memorial. We talked about all that important man. His racial classification that really should have been the whole program. But I didn't know anything about that until I talked to him. So, meh. but I mean, that should, pff, for so many reasons, I mean, just just this segment right here. I'm going to play it back. People that have been with the cows for a while, I guess it's about to be a long time. Way back in 2013, we had Dave Myers as a guest on the program. In fact, I think he called in when Dr. Eddie Moore Jr. was a guest on the program the first time in 2009. Dave Myers called in just to share his views. And then we had him as a guest way later. Dave Myers has a white mom black mom or white mom black dad they lied to him about his racial classification for years they told him he had some sort of skin condition or whatever where his mom his white mom concocted this elaborate lie uh, about all this and he didn't find out that she actually had sex with a black guy until way later on down the road it reminded me of that after the fact, like I said, I'm just I'm going to play this back. And I even have to add in because it's not in the segment. Dr. Jeff K. Ward, no definition of racism. No definition of racism. That's so common. The times where we've had non-white guests on the program, sometimes accidentally over the last couple of years, as opposed to me asking them if they think my definition is accurate. I just ask them, do you have a definition for racism? It is staggering. The number of and we're talking people with PhDs who've written books, reports, dissertations, many books, sometimes go out and give big lectures and all that. No definition. That's even going back to what I said. We are not scientific. We are not precise. How are you scientific about a subject matter? And you don't even define your terms. The principal term that we're talking about you don't even have a, a framework for the concept. How is that scientific? And you hear that over and over and over and over and over. This is Dr. Jeff K. Ward giving us the detail on his racial classification. Wow. Could he, I told him it could have been a whole book, whole program. Context of white supremacy. Cowbell most important question are you classified as a white man dr ward <laughs> well that's interesting did you do a survey of your listeners i would be curious to know what the data say about what people thought i will i'll tell you once you once you give us the answer so are you classified as a white man 
Well, well, you know, it's interesting you say that because really the answer is twofold. One is how I identify, uh, but you've asked me how I'm classified. And how I'm classified is, is uh, really a matter of, of, of the uh, racial meaning people assign to me. And, you know, as an ambiguous black person, uh, I've lived my whole life being, uh, you know, confronted with people being puzzled. What am I? You know, so quote unquote, and uh, are you black or how black are you? And all those kinds of questions. So, um, to to answer the question you you you, you want me to answer, in terms of which I think is how do I identify? Uh, uh, I identify as African American, and I I grew up in a black family. And my parents were biological parents. Father was black, mother was white, and so I'm. Biracial, but I was adopted as a one-year-old by a black family from Chicago, and that's and that's why that's a, and so that's how I identify. Uh, a classification is another question, and you know, and that really gets into the the nature of race uh, as a social construct and and something that gets uh, assigned and and also. Uh, that gets constructed through things like uh, your favorite topic, racist jokes. Oh, Got to get to that one. My favorite topic. Wowzers. Okay. Uh, that, now, actually, the question was, are you classified as a white man? And certainly racial classifications are, as you say, a social construct. They are made up. Absolutely. However, in a system of racism, white supremacy, they are real. And specifically for people born in the U.S., they put that on your birth certificate and lots of legal documents. We've talked about white by law. So your birth certificate, what's your racial classification listed as? You know, uh, I don't know. And in fact, I'm not sure it's on my birth certificate. So I have to go check. But uh, by the uh, conventions of race by law, uh, particularly the one drop rule. So I mentioned my biological parents. Um, I'm a black person. And whether the, uh, the hospital knew that when I was born uh, is another question. Whether I made it up to my birth certificate is another question. Uh, but, you know, I, I'll have to go look that up. It's interesting. It's interesting. I don't remember seeing it last time I... I I, I I would be willing to bet a few dollars it is on there, maybe even some Benjamins. Uh, I bet it's on there. That is a big deal here in these parts, the whole world, really. Those racial classifications mm-hmm. are important. Uh, but I don't want to minimize. Make sure I heard that correctly. So you said you have one biological non-white parent classified as black. I think that was your father. And then one biological white parent, your mom, I think you said, and then you were right. adopted by two black yeah. parents. I think you said when you were one, is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Wow. Born in Berkeley, California in 1971. Wow. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's correct. Wow. Okay. So did you? Did they tell you pretty early on that you were adopted, or did they leave that till later on? Uh, no, that, that came out later, uh, and, you know, it's a long, long story, but it, it did, they didn't tell me early on, uh, 
and I learned that later. In fact, I learned that uh, well into my early uh, early adulthood. And by which point, I was already beginning to pursue uh, uh, an academic career in sociology as a student, at least. And and you won't be surprised to know that one of the things I was most interested in early in my journey as a sociologist was the um, uh, it was was skin tone and. Uh, and skin tone stratification. So my earliest research was on on um, skin color and uh, stratification among African Americans. Man, context of white supremacy. I'm, that should have been the whole program right there. Racist jokes, that is important. And yes, that is, you know, one of my favorite subjects. Very important for a lot of reasons reveal so much truth about what it means to be white. Uh, the lynching of John Buckner, because I didn't know about that lynching, and just as important, the current, uh, like 2024, white refusal in Obama's Kansas to put up this marker to acknowledge the lynching. All of that, very important. But to have a non-white person adopted by a black family grew up he said he was you know not no longer a child so I'm going to say over 18 20s or older before they are told you have a biological white mother a biological black father and we adopted you at one talk about ambiguous black person like man man what is going on now I sit around we are confused we are not scientific we don't understand racism white supremacy what it is and how it works how are you going to understand anything I have grown up thinking these are my parents. No. White mom, biological white mom, biological black dad, we adopted you at one. And you don't find all this out until 20 years later or more, maybe. And to see this is not a one-time thing because in that same program I mentioned, we read S.E. Mae Washington Williams. That's the same thing. Raped biological white dad, biological black mom who was a child, child raped specifically. I grew up in this house with these people that I think are my parents and then I don't find out later that, what? What? White? What? Remember she talked about all that resentment and she didn't think her parents treated her the same way and all this and all that and then find out oh these aren't even my parents. Yes. Black people, Gus T, all of the non-white people, yes. We are confused. He said ambiguous black person we are filled with ambiguity you better believe it 
the people who are most to blame for that you had better believe they are classified as white matter of fact remember we had Lacey Schwartz on the program that was 10 years ago too 2014 she did the documentary uh, I think it's called Little White Lies the minimizing everything gets minimized Little White Lies the same thing non-white female one biological white parent one biological non-white parent she grew up in her white family and they told her that she just you know was dark complexion and had olive skin tone and all that in fact she lied to us there's no other way I can even say it because she got on the program and she said that the white people that she was around they just accepted her as white that is a total lie within her own documentary the white people that she grew up with they get on film and say oh we just thought you were adopted we never believed that you were there your white parents biological child I mean really you think we're thick or something they said this in the film it just the only problem was I didn't get to see this film. It wasn't released widely until after she was a guest on the program. But it's the same thing. White biological mom lies. So she grows up thinking, you know, whatever. And then she doesn't find out later that, oh, my white mom had an affair with a black dude. And that's how I was produced. She was stepping out on my white dad, who's not really my dad, even though we grew up together. Mm. Mm. and her white mom on camera says that she had an extremely sexual relationship with this black dude that's why I said like dang what what is this situation 1970s Dr. Jeff K. Ward his white mom black dad they're in the, like 1971 what is the situation is this like a, we met up at a Black Panther rally we met at UC Berkeley we met at a Sly and the Family Stone concert like what what is man man there is lots of confusion and lots of it you can go back to Adarian Murray lots of it is when you play around with sex the joke is on the offspring confusion man oh I would love to know that story (laughs) just what what was all this what man man anyway um, I, I can't even imagine how many times that sort of scenario has been repeated and then you see a lot of that same pattern too where it's black people who are left to uh, I'm not saying this to disparage Mr. Ward or anything but I mean a lot of these instances clean up the mess S.E. Mae Washington Williams where you got black people who are taking this on and pretending to be the parents of this child and then they don't find out that that's not even the case until years later like it seems like it's been lots of that like generations of that sort of thing tell the truth shame the devil I just it would, I felt it would have been criminal uh, to minimize all of that from this past Wednesday. Maybe should have made even way more of that. But I mean, <laughs> I didn't I didn't come into the program. I came into the program thinking that we were going to be talking to someone who was classified as white, maybe. And then, wow. Uh, anyway, 
Very interesting. Uh, and then even his focus on racial stratification. Anyway, in the archives, you can check it out. Hear that and the racist jokes uh, component. You play around with sex. The joke is on the offspring. See that you have all of these generations of non-white children who are lied to about everything. Lied to about Santa Claus. Lied to about the Easter Bunny. Lied to about white people. Lied to about your parents. Lied to about everything. Don't lie to your children. That would be one. Might even. Is that another one we put on the 10 stops? Do not lie to non-white children. Now, if you can pull off doing Christmas without lying, great. But I think it should even that we, nope, nope. There's no justification or excuse to lie to a non-white four-year-old, three-year-old for any reason. Don't lie to non-white children, non-white people really, but especially do not lie to non-white children. That is blasphemous, and it's been too many generations of that. Let's be truthful. At least let's be truthful to the children. Don't start them out on a whole lot of fantasy and nonsense and make-believe, man. Come on. Come on. Too many. You don't even know who your parents are? Come on. Come on. Come on. Uh, number to dial, 605-313-5164. The code 564 nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate i hope uh, no one felt i was uh making light or mocking in any way dr ward that certainly was not the case either when he was with us this past tuesday or today i just am highlighting really uh magnifying the importance of what he shared in that moment but certainly no mockery intended same thing i said with that may washington williams a victim of racism man in the worst kind of way like jesus lord anyway but if folks have thoughts on that commentary on uh any of the different news reports suggestions thoughts to share 605-313-5164 decode 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate see if folks have thoughts to share how they're getting through the so-called holiday uh, madness as well see here folks are spectating getting their thoughts together I reckon give them a few moments to think see if they have uh, observations to make Uh, again we'll be here at minimum on Tuesday normal time 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific uh, white guests only again maybe Monday as well not sure you can just check uh, social media and all that we'll update as I once I find out you know what the schedule is looking like for the coming week. Uh, we will have a new book on Thursday, just completed James B. Stewart's blind eye, uh, this past Thursday, man, I learned so much. Uh, that book had so much directly about white supremacy, racism as a global system, way more than I, uh, anticipated. Uh, I think other folks who we have a lot of listeners who are in the healthcare field and such in a variety of different, you know, places and all that. Uh, I think a lot of them didn't know a whole lot about Michael Swango uh, and have been impacted by what they learned, share 
Uh, in fact, even just sharing the resources, telling other victims of racism, might want to look up that Swango dude, find out who he is, might impact, you know, at least being more informed, more uh, inquisitive, asking questions when we go to the doctor, uh, maybe even jot down so you can write maybe some notes. What did they look like? How did they behave? What was their demeanor? All the rest of it. In case you need to, you know, have a recollection. Remember important details about this exchange uh, down the road. But we finished that one. So we'll have a brand new book uh, for this coming Thursday for the Catherine Massey Book Club. I'll be sure to uh, update probably by mm, Tuesday, I reckon. Uh, I'll give the uh, update for whatever we'll be reading next, give myself an opportunity to change my mind, see if anything important happens between uh, now and Thursday, but new book uh, coming up on Thursday, Catherine Massey book club. Hopefully folks have learned from some of the selections that we've had over the uh, past year or so uh, for the folks who are dealing with all of the, what shall I say? Holiday madness or Whatever it is, I didn't realize that we were so close to so-called Christmas. If you're engaged in all of that, if you have to travel, uh, any if you're hosting so-called relatives or any of the rest of it, maximize the constructive activity of it all. Uh, to, in my view, that means not forcing discussions of racism, white supremacy on people if they don't want to talk about it or really not forcing people to talk about or engage in any sort of activities if they are resistant or not willing. Uh, just try and keep things constructive. Same thing I said at the top of the broadcast, really minimizing conflict. We can talk about having healthier versions of some of the recipes or what have you that we typically eat. Talk about if uh, you're together with people who have offspring talk about you know the social media plan do they allow their child to have a phone at what age what have the results been would they do it differently if they had it to do over what sort of gadgets did their children ask for what sort of dangers all of that that would be great things you could talk about that doesn't necessarily have to be racism would certainly be constructive uh parenting tips that's always you know good resource kind of see what's happening uh in that front uh, but try to keep it constructive. I will get my PSA in again. Sobriety would be best. I am very sure they will have sobriety checkpoints and maybe even starting like next weekend all the way through the end of the year because they do, you know, all the big bashes and debauchery for uh, New Year's Eve and all that's, you know, right on the horizon. So especially I'd say if you have younger non-white people if you have children they just started driving or even if they've been driving for a few years or so maybe they're off in so-called college and they're coming home for christmas break and all that stuff let them know man sobriety checkpoints you do not want to mess around get stopped if you have you know had a sip of anything you do not want to have random contact race soldiers badge or no this time of year that can be a real downer uh, and even being mindful because there are so many you know parties and get togethers this time of year and especially at night and on the weekends probably will be more intoxicated motorists out on the road maybe even be mindful uh, about going out especially late in the evening and such 
get to one spot and stay there. If you're going to have some sort of get together or what have you, one spot, stay there, leave in the morning when you are sober and rested. Neely Fuller Jr. does recommend no parties. I wholeheartedly agree. But if you got to do some sort of, you know, like I said, get together, whatever, end of the year, try to make it constructive. Try to have healthy foods that won't kill you. Try to see if you can make it so dry. January is right around the corner. As they say, keep it sober. If you can, that might even help minimize some of the chaos and conflict. People get a little more uh, rowdy. I'll say if they are under the influence, uh, at least that's been my observation for a number of times, white and non-white people that often tends to be the case. Give out the number again, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, Folks are spectating, wrapping gifts, or doing whatever uh, else with their Saturday evening. We'll give like another mm, three minutes or so. See if folks have commentary to share if they are spectating for the evening. Uh, Again, we'll be here minimum Tuesday. Not sure about Monday, but minimum Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. White guests only. Looking forward to, especially folks in the Alabama region, just had J.C. Hallman on the program and talking about J. Marion Sims, got all those statues down in Alabama, as well as his statues in uh, South Carolina. They took the one down in Central Park, uh, but just talked about all of that. Lots of uh, detailed information throughout that text. In fact, I mentioned at the beginning of the program when Mr. Hallman was on the program, I think I said doctor, he's not a doctor, Mr. J.C. Hallman. When he was on the program, I mentioned the eggnog riot of 1826 I almost kind of mentioned it as an aside because it really didn't have anything to do with uh, Anarka or any of these slaves that were terrorized and abused but it is mentioned in the book and I'd never heard of it before the program ended and I said hmm I have to go and see what you know maybe they got a book or something about all this maybe they have more details man I was slightly bummed because I thought they might have tons of books uh, on this because this, uh, even though it's 1826, almost 200 years old, it happened at West Point in New York. And because this was such a written up event, I mean, this is like criminal activity and they had court martials and all that. So they had lots of written material uh, on all of this that got preserved and it involved a lot of soon to be prominent white people, uh, suspected racists. Uh, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis and number of the, I think some white people who ended up on the Supreme Court. West Point, you know, future white leaders of the system of white supremacy. Uh, But they, and he said prank when Mr. Hallman, he explained, he said it was like a frat boy prank at West Point and all this and man, I go to look at all of this and these white dudes at West Point as Jefferson Davis, future leader of the Confederacy. They go get all of this liquor. Same thing with Columbine. All this underage drinking. We do whatever we want to. They go get all of this liquor and eggnog, I guess, flavor. 
uh, and are all turned up and doing all their craziness. And I guess the white generals at West Point that are in charge, I guess the adults, they knew that something like this was going to happen. They had been doing stuff before, doing this sort of thing before. So they're trying to stop all the debauchery. They fail. The white people end up shooting, breaking up everything, uh, almost killed one of the garments. Debauchery is putting it mildly. All of that right there. When they had the incident down in Houston a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, night of debauchery, and they had so many drunken white people that it messed up service at the hospital and said, we are not doing this again next year. That is white culture through and through. They made, in fact, glorify it because some of the titles, it's the great eggnog mutiny of 1826, signifying as though this was a swell old time. Man, knock down the stairwell. We almost killed John. And Another reason sobriety would be best. Had enough of that old debauchery where, of course, things get out of hand. Metaphor. Speaking of out of hand, I almost neglected. They had that segment. They were talking about now in high schools, they've had such a, a, a problem with opioids and fentanyl and all the rest of it. They have had actual students dying in the schools. I'm not stunned about that because they've had a number of reports talking about how they've got more and more children using opioids, fentanyl, dying, all of that. No surprise there. Increasing number of black people in all of this, too. They said, okay, we tried the punitive approach. That didn't work. Now we're going to go not punishing at all for children and the fentanyl use, opioid use at school. I said, you got to tell me something like we had all of that zero tolerance and punitive school actions. I remember it was 180 day school suspensions. I remember that. Those were the policies that they were talking about. It was not no uh, restorative justice and rehabilitation and none of that. Now that you've got white children on these opioids, now they're well, they don't want to ruin. They've got a bright future. We don't want to mess all that up. So, yeah, yeah, we don't do 180 days. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was a man. I remember tons of folks, they got all kinds of draconian suspensions and and even just talking dirty about us. Shouldn't say dirty, but talking bad about us and drug crackhead generation and super predator, all of that. And now it's you don't even get in school suspension. None of that. Come on, man. Like I mean, what does it mean to be white? You can do anything. And matter of fact, they said that at Columbine, right? They said they had the whole smoker's corner. You're not supposed to be smoking cigarettes under age either. But they had the whole smoker's corner. You could do cannabis at school and all of that. The underage drinking. I keep saying that with uh, the Murdoch trial in South Carolina. Alec Murdoch and all of that started. Buster Murdoch and they went out boating underage drinking. They crashed the boat and killed that girl. I said, dang, to be white. Did they car? We kept saying that. When we read Columbine, like, dang. Do they card? If you're white, red, vodka, 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 that's your nickname. Do they card? You're supposed to be 21, right? 
you're 15, 16 years old, you just go out do what I get, what get me some cannabis, get me some opioids, got me some pills, roofies, and then you don't even get suspended from school. What they, what, uh, what's the, the affluenza? I thought that's what they told us about a decade ago. You know, I'm 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 white and I'm I'm privileged and and I'm powerful and and you know I just I just don't have discipline. You know, I I, I just don't have structures. I, I run over people and kill them and I don't even that's what they said, right? This seems like there's more of that. Where's the you spoil the child, you spare the rod and you spoil the child? Isn't that in the Bible? That's what they told us. Especially, that's what they told us for crack, right? appalled anew each day especially with the opioids like wow why don't you just make it legal how about all that that would charge that would change all of it just make it legal and you can go get that at the dispensary too amazing let's see folks who dialed in if you have commentary i call her in florida she'd be with us nab other folks see hands Yes, sir. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners, and callers. Uh, it was toward the beginning. I did hear the segment about uh, Rudy Giuliani in that in that uh, court case about the money and the millions of dollars. It was interesting how that may have been a, a white reporter where he was describing of how uh, the victims were perceived by uh, Rudy Giuliani. I think that's how he was trying to uh, describe the the story about how he just sees them as just drug dealers. Or I might be inaccurate, but I did hear that part, how blatant that was. And that's interesting how he put that into the report, being that he is a racist suspect. When he made that comment about the the uh, crack vials or something like that, or heroin or something. Um, the next segment that I noticed was the the bank, I think the mortgage loans, and then they like to say the disparities because first I remember hearing it where it was a disparity between white borrowers and black borrowers. And then they brought into saying, I think Latino, (laughs) Latino borrowers and white borrowers. So I'm like, man, you know, even when they interviewed the black person, I think I was a victim, and he used the term discrimination, uh, they still try to make sure they didn't just say that the issue was racism and that he was even able to go and get accepted by another bank or a credit union. So even when the mistreatment is very obvious uh, racist white supremacists still won't of course they they won't use that term Um, and the 
the the one with the the segment about they were talking about the the cute alligator. They did, yeah, they did use that word cute. I haven't heard that term used to refer to an alligator. I just only see where they've, um, especially down here, they even tried to bite somebody's leg off or, you know, they're doing something to cause harm. There's people running from the reptile, I think. But I hadn't used that. I hadn't heard that term used, cute. And I'm, I'm thinking that because the alligator is small and I guess, well, mostly because the, the, the pigment or the lack of pigment that is white, that's one of them codes, I think. Um, they wanted to use to describe the alligator as white, but I don't think they use cute when they said the, the brother, the brother is green. They, they didn't say, I don't think they said cute. I don't know. Um, just only one talking about the, the white or uh, leucistic, I think. Um, in the, in the last one where they were talking about, maybe that was Colorado where the, the white girls were, uh, using the racial slurs and being open and honest with their racism. Uh, I think they said that the NAACP or some organization like that was trying to get them to come and apologize. I just don't think a racist would do that. Like the, I think that would be them showing themselves because you know they like to go into hiding. I don't know if that's a metaphor. They like to be anonymous. Um, but even that still was kind of blatant. If they, if they if that was on like some kind of video, uh, that, you know, that was very arrogant of them. And, you know, that's what I expect from them to do or to be, but I just don't think they will do something like that. Like I'm going to come and apologize. Like, you know, they, they get their support from their fellow white, um, white supremacists and other white people. Like, just don't do it that time. Don't, don't do that. Don't have them soldiers open and being online like that. You can't do that. You got to teach them. That's what I think they're doing. They're, they're having a discussion. You can't say those kind of words, Brittany or whatever the girl might be, you know. Uh, but, but yes, yeah, so other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, uh, our caller in Florida. Uh, I I think that is correct. They did not refer to the normal gator, colored gator, as cute. It was only the leucistic gator with the pale skin and blue eyes that was cute. Uh, they said we got he's cute now, and his his old colored brother. Get on out of it. Ah, ah. He's so cute. He's blue eyed. That was the way they did. Now see that right there. That's why I said the. Why is all this even important? Do we normally do reports at Gatorland? Like I said, especially in Florida, like they do not talk about no cute gators in Florida. They are they'll take a finger off. Like oh my god, ah, or make a purse out of it. Pair of shoes. See my gator loafers. Whoa, I'm stepping out. I'm gonna be styling on them for. That's what they say. Not they're cute. You don't make pet. 
gators. They talk about gator baiting. We fed a nigger child to them or something like that. Not it's it's cute. Are you serious? I've never heard that ever. If it's gator and cute, it is immediately followed by purse, loafers, attire of some sort. The gator is no longer with us, but woo, we skinned it. And I'm sharp. Not cute, even then. Uh, the They don't even normally call reptiles cute. That's true. They, I, I have seen like, the Komodo dragon. I told you they had him at the, the beach here last week. I've seen the serpents and such. Think of how many times in your life they have referred to a reptile as cute. That's normally the one that gives you the ooh, ooh, give me the willies. Oh, gotta run, get away from him. Ooh, slimy. They got a that was Colorado at Cherry Creek where they said apparently it might have been some victims of racism where they said we want you to come and acknowledge what you did and apologize. Victims guaranteed qualified. Uh, Mr. Fuller does say explicitly do not ask for apologies especially not from racists uh, in this sort of situation I would I don't even know what that accomplishes to have them come and say you know our bad um, we really want to blame this on Kanye West to be truthful because you know if we hadn't been listening to all of his no count music all these years we would have behaved better but either way we are sorry and uh we promise we're not going to do this again. Now, they said in the in the in the report, this is the second time that they've had a video like this within the past within this school year, just since September, right? So that I mean, really, that's even more context for the apology. So, are we going to just come and do apologies like every other month for whatever the latest act of racism is? And this even provides an opportunity for some white tears like, oh, man, they can come and bring in their white friend. And I'm so sorry. I, you know, I love black people. <laughs> like, OK. All right. All right. We're, no more apology tours. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, we all love black people. Speaking of white tears, that segment where they had the gay and LGBT and transgender people and all that cr- anti-sex crying. And we want this to like, Wow. That was challenging to hear. Uh, saccharine, the word, something that is uh, melodramatic, insincere. I mean, really. And even when they said, now these are people that are engaged in all of this anti-sex and all this. And they said, well, I want a child that looks a little bit like me, and a little bit like my partner. I coded that because the people who can afford these 10, 20, 30, procedures generally are classified as white. That's how I coded that. I wanted even, I had Dr. Francis Cress Welsing white genetic annihilation in my mind the whole way through. Do you want your grandchildren to look like, they just said, yes. I want them to look like, do you think I want them to look like Al Sharpton? Ben Crump? die what is wrong with you no even if we're transgender and all that I want them to look like me like the the little cute 
leucistic non or reptile. Not that old colored dark. Yeah, yeah. Get on out of here, brother. Get on out of here. Get on out of here. I want him to be cute. I.E. F.A.I.R. Pale. Anywho, uh, make sure I did not, uh, yeah, I don't want to apologize. With the, the banking situation, I did just want to add, now I know some people might say, you know, they slipped one of those old pretend black people in because uh, they had a black male who reported that he was so-called Kenyan, but he still didn't get the loan. Now they might even say, well, he went to another bank and he did get the loan. Yeah. I, how much better do I feel about that? I think that's what is that Kenyan privilege? What am I? What? System of justice, man. System of justice, and even my Kenyan brother. He want to say Kenyan privilege or whatever that is. We said, well, you know, it's discrimination. He said, we even there, white supremacy, racism. Can't even call things by their proper name. That's I'm not you know grousing with him. I'm just saying the confusion, and it might have even been. They may have said, eh, if he tried to say white supremacy, and eh, stop, halt, wait a minute, brother. Uh, is your visa status okay? Okay, I'm just making sure. We check his immigration status. Let's try this again. Uh, prejudice? Is that can we say that? Prejudice? Discrimination? Privilege? <laughs> what? What shall I say? What? What am I allowed to say? We'll say that one. It's not discrimination. It's not prejudice. It's not microaggression. Man, we had white guests come on the program. White people are doing things to mess over your funds so that you can't even have a house. It's cold. We heard people died last year with no electricity. You don't even have a house. That is terrorism. And they've been doing that for a long time. Keep them squatters on the move. But yeah, they had lots of obfuscation uh, within, even within that uh, report. And they, they even said, because they had to do disparities, right? They, he said discrimination. They said disparity. And they said, well, we can't exactly say it's racism. They always find some way where it's, we can't say it's racism. But we do know that black people and white people with the same income, same debt ratio, same assets, looking about the same property value they do not get accepted for the same types of loans not even close and that's another one that was the federal navy federal credit union this is for veterans they had that whole uh, segment sergeant uh, Spicely killed in North Carolina I said, I mean, how many of those is it? Black veterans, Neely Fuller Jr., uh, who went out, served their country, and all of that come back, been brutalized, victims of white supremacy, don't get all the benefits. We talked about that with Irie and many other folks. <laughs> the Veteran Credit Union, and this is how you're treating black veterans and or non-white people in general? That's another one that I'd look at and say, I don't think that's because black people didn't vote. That's because white people are dedicated to white supremacy racism. Even in that report, they said, what, what are we to do? Do we tell black applicants when they go to the bank, 
try to apply for a loan, house, business, whatever it is, uh, do you not put your racial information down? They said, then we don't have the data to be able to, and they, now they still can't prove, but they can just say, well, there's a disparity. Even if you don't put that information down, and they have a number of these where they've said there are other codes, other information that would suggest what your racial classification probably is. They can take, certainly, what did I already say today? The Action News Race and Culture Reporter, Taronda Thomas. That right there. Now, that one, you got a two for race and culture. Hmm. And then the name. They already got piles of data on that. Some of it, zip code. They got lots of different ways where your racial information is coded in other ways. Yes, they make errors and all of that. We talked about that as well. It's not foolproof, but they would have lots of ways, even if you don't put that information down. Because I think France is one of those areas of the world. They do not have racial classification on all of their government forms. And I think it might even be against the law to ask for that information. They certainly still have a system of white supremacy racism. So it's lots of ways that they, you know, white people still win. Racism is still going to be the end product. However, we, you know, whichever road we take to get there. Anywho, um, the banking one, that's always an important one. Always when individuals, we've had many non-white people, guests, listeners who strongly, vehemently take the position that it is not racism. Speaking of Kanye West, it is the Benjamins. Just got to get enough money, economic power, we will do it. Victims guaranteed qualified. I submit the people who are in charge of the finances, economics, classified as white the white wall it seems like it doesn't even matter how much money we've said that so how much money do you need to have for white supremacy racism to never be a problem for you again in life never get that figure it must be astronomical like billion is not even close it must be out of this world literally But that sort of report, Emily Flitter's book, New York Times reporter, The White Wall. That is such a great title for the book and especially all the detail that she gives about the white wall because it's all about banking. And that writer, she probably even wrote about that because she writes currently for the New York Times about those exactly. That's her field of journalism, economics white supremacy racism I have to see I bet you she does not have that tacky uh, race and culture I am for sure that's not her bottom line I have to go back and see what I wrote for the description I know it is not no race and culture uh, nonsense for the New York Times Emily Flitter white woman suspected racist although that book is very very constructive reading nonfiction more important than watching TV uh, let's see. See, anybody, do we miss anybody? Anybody else comments they want to make sure that they get in before uh, we wrap up? Be here Tuesday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Let's see. Anyone else comments that they want to make sure they get in? 
folks. See, see if they're good. Everybody's good. I'm checking. Emily Flitter, let's see. New York Times journalist. Let's see how she's officially. I thought I had her New York Times bio tag in the cow's description of her January. Okay, let's see. So the New York Times, hmm, okay, well, she doesn't have one of those cool titles, so I still correct because it does not, she just doesn't have an official title. It just has her name and that's it. Whereas uh, for Taronda Thomas, she is officially listed as the Action News Race and Culture Reporter. Emily Flitter, it just gives a description, Emily Flitter covers finance for the New York Times before joining the Times in 2017 she spent 8 years at Reuters writing about politics, financial crimes and the environment she is the author of The White Wall How Big Finance Bankrupts Black America published in 2022 seems like she last published a few weeks ago I was just looking to see if uh, she had something on the federal, Navy federal racism but I do not see don't see that but she has uh, quite a few more recent uh, reports and there we go racism again federal court says consumer watchdog can't check bans banks for discrimination see 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 can't say white supremacy racism that's the problem Anyway, that's Emily Flitter, F-L-F-L-I-T-T-E-R, classified as white. Uh, She was on the cows January of this year. Again, that book, The White Wall, is very constructive, and that is exactly what that whole book is about, uh, and even includes black employees who work at these banks and how white supremacy racism is practiced against them where either they don't get clients or even if they get all the way up and they become the CEO of the company or what have you they're still mistreated and white people are resentful of them and don't want to listen to them and all the rest of it I mean it's just so global even once you leave the US you still see the same patterns in banking firms all over the world very constructive and even that's another book I said that is a theme for the year we had so many different white guests white guests who pointed out where there were points where white people are more informed about racism than non-white people and or just information in general she has that at the very beginning of the book Everybody underestimates the economic impact of white supremacy racism and how much more wealth and power just your average white person has in relation to the average black person and non-white people especially underestimate the gap, power, wealth between us and white people. That's at the beginning of the book and we talked about that when she was on the program in January super important we had that so many times this year anywho Tuesday yes 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific different 
white guests, hopefully constructive info. Uh, be t- Emily Flitter's white wall is very constructive, but hopefully the book for the, oh man, Cow Bell. Reading, writing, researching, more important than watching television. 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, Tuesday, might be here Monday. We'll have to see. Much obliged for the folks uh, tuned in, live, archive, hopefully worthy of your time and energy. New book, Catherine Massey Book Club, uh, coming on Thursday. Every program, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. New book, uh, I'll have it posted, I think, by Tuesday. I might even be ready to roll and tell folks on Tuesday uh, with the new book in case I change my mind and all. By Tuesday, I should be definitive, ready to roll. Uh, sobriety would be best don't want to be messing around for the so-called holidays Uh, they already encourage the great eggnog mutiny of 1926 there's already a lot of debauchery and binge drinking encouraged really all the way to the end of the year so go ahead and start dry January as they call it early We need our brain computer for lots of important tasks and problem solving. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no throwaway offspring. Even contrast that individuals classified as white battling white infertility maybe a losing fight spending tens of thousands of dollars and the hopes that technology will allow them to produce offspring that looks like them cute pale classified as white Value the production of offspring. No throwaway black children. Cow signing up. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.